0: Hello, my fellow Westorians. Today in the U.S., it is Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Shay and I are not fans, but I know Sean's going to be watching. Absolutely, I am. Yeah, yeah, right on. That got me thinking. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think about when I'm listening to them. It's usually while I'm doing chores or driving around, which oftentimes driving around is kind of the same thing as doing chores. I wonder where you all are listening. And since I know if you're here today, there's a good chance you are either heading out to a Super Bowl party later, or maybe you're catching this a podcast edited version rather than the live stream, which you know, most of y'all do. The live stream is just a, a small fraction of total listeners. But I'm always curious how and when y'all listen. Occasionally, one of y'all sends in a message and says, I listen every day while I'm driving around. Some of y'all drive around a lot. and That's a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. Some of y'all have other job situations where you can listen or maybe you're bedridden with an illness and audio entertainment has extra value there. So wherever you're listening right now or wherever you generally listen, whether you're in the normal place or not, well, we're glad to be with you. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's- Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust.
1: Ew, ew.
0: Ah! Sadness is in the house. Oh no. Hello, I'm Anxiety.
2: I'm one of Riley's new emotions.
0: Disney ah! and Pixar's Inside Out 2.
2: There's a part two. We're going.
0: Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters. Friday. Get tickets now.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. <laughs> An endless night. Ember, hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
2: And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
0: Uh, Hopefully you have a tasty beverage with you wherever you're at, too. Maybe not one quite so strange is what Sean's got, which is what today, Sean.
1: Georgian paste. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you really switched it up. Is it because of the Super Bowl?
3: <laughs> now, are you watching the Super Bowl? As everyone heard me ask, <laughs>
1: I'm definitely watching the Super Bowl. This is it. This is like a deep blood red color. I actually have a theme. It's not completely random this time. I have watermelon Mountain Dew mixed with watermelon Bang mixed with watermelon. Sparkling ice mixed with the rainbow naked drink, rainbow machine. <laughs> Whoa! And as always, maybe more than normal, it's delicious. But it doesn't. It all tastes like watermelon, right? It tastes like georgian paste.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've always been curious what georgian paste tastes like. Now I know. Make sure to check out GoodQueenAlley.tumblr.com. I almost said .dot .com, which like that's a pain. really good. Don't check that out. That's a really good Conan <laughs> reference. Conan worships the god Krom. <laughs> wow, you know, the internet would be a different place. I thought Conan O'Brien was atheist. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a different place if it was Crom instead of .com. <laughs> Man, just think about that. Just for a minute, think about that. No, don't think about that. Think instead about what Harold Harding's two-acknowledged bastard children are, how they're likely to be treated, like, class-wise. It's an interesting comparison to look at different bastards in different situations around the story and kind of guess or analyze how they're being treated based on the circumstances around them. That is the recent topic on Nina's blog, uh, the most recent one. So I highly recommend checking it out and all the other things she's written. If you are a patron of History of Westeros, we highly appreciate it. You're locked in to get our bonus episodes and other content at the lowest possible rate. We are here in 2022 working on adding a lot more to our bonus episode catalog, which will eventually result in the price going up. Not very much, but it will go up. More content means, well, we should charge a little more for it. That's only fair. But if you get locked in now, your price will stay the same. We're not going to raise any prices on anyone who's already a patron. So get yourself locked in. Keep that price the same for, well, however long you want to keep it. You may have noticed today's name is The Rage of Heroes. It's our name for this episode on, of course, The Age of Heroes. In this case, it's not just me being unable to resist the pun, but that is part of it. <laughs> it- is
1: that a pun or a play on words? Ooh.
0: Mm. <laughs> ah, good question. It might be a play on- I guess it is a play on words. You're right. That is a play on words. That may not be a pun. I'm not sure. I don't know the technical definition of pun, which is a shameful thing for me to admit at this stage, isn't it? Hmm. Maybe next week I'll do some pun research.
1: There's a lot of crossover. It's fine.
0: <laughs> well, in this case, rage has multiple meanings apart
1: from the wordplay. We'll call it wordplay for now. Wait, I just have to say not to put too fine a pun on it. Oh,
0: nice. <laughs> that was good. Good set. Good <laughs> sung, maybe? The hmm. lyric, yeah. But number one, it's, uh, it's another nod. Well, I guess number two if number one is wordplay. Number two, it's another nod to the strong... Greek mythical influence on this era, specifically the rage of Achilles that is quite literally contained in the first line of the Iliad, which is...
3: Sing, O goddess, the rage of Achilles, son of Peleus, that brought countless ills upon the Achaeans.
0: To be thorough, sometimes that word rage is anger or wrath of Achilles, anger. It's the same word, basically. Achilles is enraged because even though he himself is a king, the king of Pythia, Agamemnon is the higher king is the High King, and he takes the enslaved Princess Briseis for himself. In this era, too, we see High Kings in Westeros, a title made obsolete by the Iron Throne, but before the dragons or even the Andals, well, there were also High Kings during the Andal uh, period, but not to put too fine a pun on it. When there were hundreds of kings, (laughs) some kings ruled over others. That would be a simple way to put it. Meaning number two has nothing to do with, with Greece or any other myth cycle. It's simply the slang version of rage as in a trend. It's all the rage in this era for heroes and great deeds and those grand figures set trends that have lasted for thousands of years. And that is a big part of our focus today. Last time we talked about influences more. This time we'll spend most of our time in Westeros despite the the opening with the quote from the Iliad. We're going to be focused on some of the major figures, specifically Garth Greenhand, Land the Clever, the Grey King, and Durin, God's Grief, most of all, but also a lot of the subordinate figures within those regions, their descendants. Also, we're going to spend time in each region when we get there. We'll do a section on the Stormlands in the World of Ice and Fire, but here we'll take our opportunity to compare them, region by region, what the differences in culture and founding figures are within Westeros. I think this can going to be a lot of fun. Even though I said it wasn't just about the wordplay, I've got some wordplay to kick us off.
1: Yeah, did any of the heroes ever get put in jail?
0: Well, where would they be kept, is what you're asking?
1: Yeah, maybe a cage of heroes? Ah,
0: yes, that's <laughs> correct. But it's a good-smelling jail, a good-smelling cage of heroes, because the official herb of this era is sage of heroes. <laughs> the people keeping that cage are well-paid, uh, they're the wage of heroes. Do they earn? Yes, the wage of heroes. There's duties that have to be done around the cage before the wages can be
1: paid. And they have someone do that for them, the page of heroes. That's
0: correct. That's correct. <laughs> and these events are portrayed by dramatic performers and actors many years later. Where, Where did, would they make such a portrayal? Ah, I think they would do that on the stage of heroes. Hmm. <laughs> do you think any of them were magic users? Mm, like. The mage of heroes? Oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) What we need is a spell to make all these puns go away. (laughs) That's the real magic we need.
1: We need one to make them
0: stay forever. (laughs) (laughs) Now We spoke on how there's a belief that the age of heroes wasn't just a long time ago, but a time where things were different. That's somewhat true, somewhat isn't. It depends on who you talk to and depends on what aspect of life you're talking about. But it is, there are substantial differences, even if they're not remembered accurately or portrayed accurately always. In this quote, which I think is particularly excellent, I stumbled on it by accident looking for other stuff. It's not in the world of Ice and Fire. This is a quote from A Feast for Crows. He he describes the Age of Heroes vividly, seemingly unaware that he's living in the era come again, which is ironic because one of the big signs that the Age of Heroes has come back around again in the Iron Islands is the return of the King's Moot, right? That hasn't been seen since the Age of Heroes.
3: It's a good gauge of heroes.
0: A gauge of heroes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very good, said. Got me. And whose idea was it to bring back the King's Moot, mister? <laughs> well, it was Aaron Greyjoy's idea himself. An exchange
3: say- of heroes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been hoisted by my own petard here. <laughs> Aaron would say, well, it wasn't his idea. It was the drowned god's idea, but Aaron was the vessel, the mouthpiece. So let's hear this nice, lengthy, awesome quote to kick us off today.
1: On the crown of the hill, four and forty monstrous stone ribs rose from the earth like the trunks of great pale trees. Sight made Aaron's heart beat faster. Naga had been the first sea dragon, the mightiest ever to rise from the waves. She fed on krakens and leviathans and drowned whole islands in her wrath. Yet the Grey King had slain her and the Drowned God had changed her bones to stone so that men might never cease to wonder at the courage of the first of kings. Naga's ribs became the beams and pillars of his long haul, just as her jaws became his throne. For a thousand years and seven he reigned here, Aaron recalled, he took his mermaid wife and planned his wars against the storm god. From here he ruled both stone and salt, wearing robes of woven seaweed and a tall, pale crown made from Naga's teeth.
3: But that was in the dawn of days, when mighty men still dwelt on earth and sea. The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. On its walls hung tapestries woven from silver seaweed most pleasing to the eyes. The Grey King's warriors had feasted on the bounty of the sea at a table in the shape of a great starfish, whilst seated upon thrones carved from Mother Pearl. Gone, all the glory gone. Men were smaller now. Their lives had grown short. The storm god drowned Naga's fire after the Grey King's death. The chairs and tapestries had been stolen. The roof and walls had rotted away. Even the Grey King's great throne of fangs had been swallowed by the sea. Only Naga's bones endured to remind the Ironborn of all the wonder that had been.
0: Boy, that's a great quote. It's so perfect for today, too. It talks about how great things were and how great they're not now and and the, the process in between, some specifics as to how burning out of the fire, the stealing of the loot and the description of what people used to be like—it's really excellent. I love that quote so much.
1: Great to the perspective of Daron or an Iron, <laughs> yeah, right. an iron, iron yeah. Islander. maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like we're looking like, at was like that's great to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's super neat because this is a guy who truly believes it. Like this guy is as a believer as they as it gets, right? I mean, he's a priest, uh, a, a zealous Iron Priest. He, he, of course, he believes quite thoroughly. But take say Tyrion or Sam, someone who. Is an academic that studies these things either for a hobby or, well, because they're very deeply interested in this stuff. And they don't believe these things more than as a possibility. They're like, yeah, maybe really there were men that lived 300 years or a 1,007 years as the Great King did. But they're pretty skeptical about that. Aaron Damper doesn't question it even a little bit. He's like, yep, 1,007 years. That's what happened. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. period. No questioning it. Someone like Ned doesn't really think about it that much. He doesn't really question it that much either, but he doesn't uh, define himself by the Starks of 8,000 years ago, other than the stuff that's still relevant. Like winter is still coming. He's still Lord Stark, et cetera, things like that. Those still matter. He still has people to, to rule over, but he's not out here worried about whether there's wolf blood in him or how they behaved back then. He's worried about the problems of now where Aaron's in the past. And well, that makes it interesting for us to compare and contrast as lines like men were smaller now, their lives had grown short. You have the line, only Naga's bones endured to remind the ironborn of all the wonder that had been. And that's the thing I really want to hone in on, which is how these legends and how these artifacts left behind of that time inspire people. That's the last line. Only Naga's bones endured to remind the ironborn of all the wonder that had been. To them, that is proof, even though (laughs) the rest of the proof isn't actually there. (laughs) This one piece of proof, Proves all the rest. (laughs) It's It's something to hold on to. Yeah, so it is actually a pretty big deal to have something, to have one little piece from that era, a a living reminder, or even if it's dead because it's made of fossilized bone or what have you, or even if that's what it was, (laughs) it still works
1: that way. It still inspires. Something else I can't help but think about, too, is the perspective of people like reflecting on the, the great days of the past. And what he's thinking about is the few heroes. Yeah. He's not accounting for all the people that starved to death or were murdered or whatever else. You know what I mean? He's just thinking about his idols. And so when he says men are smaller today, on some level, he might mean that everyone's only five foot seven and 150 pounds. And they used to be six foot six and 280 (laughs) pounds, you know, like, but on some level, I think he also means smaller and that like, they're just fishermen in boats or maybe some of you were even trying to farm. They're not off being heroes in war, but Once again, those people who were farming are not starving. Their families are fed. They're not dying in war and leaving their kids orphans and everything else. And he just has this, like many people, this fantasized idea of what it was like in the old days or whatever. It's not counting for the reality of a huge majority of the population.
0: Absolutely, yeah. You're not accounting for the cost. It's, this, it's like selling out for this story, selling out for this idea, not considering all the other beings that must have existed. That's a fantastic point. That brings me to a great take from Nina here. She says it's another example of how the present is a prey of nostalgia. The glorious time of the Grey King was something that happened a long time ago in an age that no one can go back to. It's an easy circular argument that keeps the ironborn trapped in a state of nostalgia. Ever since our glorious age ended, we've gotten smaller and our lives have gotten shorter. And because we are smaller, with shorter lives, we can't do all the things the great king and his warriors used to do. So even though they don't know how, they don't understand the cycle, they can look from a very simple, basic framework and say, we were doing better when things were like that, right? He's not thinking of suffering. He's not thinking of individuals. He's thinking of his people as a whole and he views the successes of the top half percent as evidence of success of everyone which is clearly flawed (laughs) and if the great king was ruling really well and municipal and a capable administrator. Well, then there you go. <laughs> then
1: sure. Yeah. Let's get back to that time. You know, <laughs> Then they would be less likely to get into war and less likely to get to the point that they're at now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When generation after generation, they send their people off to die in war and don't pay attention to stability and farmlands. Somehow now our civilization sucks. How do we get to this
0: point? You know? like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so some of these ancient stories are lies. They're just straight up lies. And it's not necessarily the people in charge that are telling the lies on purpose. They're telling them. But they, in, in the case of someone like Aaron, he believes it too. He's not just being cynical. Ah, I can get these people to do what I want because of these stories. No, he believes it as, as much or more than they do. He's trying to remind them. He's like, yeah, part of the problem is they're not inspired. Part of the problem is their blood isn't up from hearing all these things. They're not brought to the table of the old way again. Oh, this is how it is. We got to just exist. He's like trying to remind them of what they could be, even though he's probably pretty wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of the show that many would still say is HBO's best show of all time. Game of Thrones has, has taken it over in terms of viewership numbers, which is The Wire. I'm pretty sure I've quoted this line before, but I think it was like, five, six years ago. It's been so long, but it's super relevant here. Let me set it up. There's a couple of the gangs are going at it. They're about to have a big showdown, essentially, where people are expected to die. And it's based on the killing of a higher-up member of one of the gangs. Now, it turns out this guy was not killed by the other gang. This character, Slim Charles, when he's told that, he's like, oh, Well, if it's a lie, we fight on that lie. Don't waste the opportunity of everybody being fired up like this. (laughs) This is power. You've got them where you want them. You can get them to do anything right now. They're so mad at our guy being killed... It's an opportunity. Strike while the iron's hot.
1: Like 3 days from now they're going to be It's an opportunity to sacrifice our people.
0: Yeah. Right, it's an opportunity for the <laughs> these guys, the top of gangs aren't known for taking care of <laughs> you know every <laughs> little person. They're out for themselves. And he's right. This is a chance for us to make the power of the gang stronger. You know, yeah, we may lose a few individuals, but the gang will be stronger if we act on this lie, right? It makes us better.
1: In in the world of people who've already decided to abandon morality, maybe they will be stronger, but they might not be stronger. They might be relatively stronger than the other game, but people are going to die. You yeah. just said it. Never yeah. mind the attention they're going to bring from the authorities and maybe that doesn't relate to Game of Thrones, but I don't know. No, I mean, I, I it think it does. It frustrates yeah. me the destruction that comes from violent action. I just wish they would put that to some productive action. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's,
0: you're, right to, you're right to point that out because it's their belief that it'll make them stronger. They think that, right? It isn't necessarily true. It isn't necessarily 100% accurate, but it's definitely what they think. It's definitely how they yeah. operate. And... That, too, is a pretty big deal. So Slim Charles and The Wire, we come back to Game of Thrones and say, when we get to these individual regions, we discuss their founding figures and myths. Well, a lot of these lies, a lot of these stories support and enforce or prop up the people who are already in power. So, of course, they're going to perpetuate these stories. And to them, it doesn't matter whether they're true or not. It matters that it keeps them in power. It's like, well, who cares if it's true? We're going to speak to it we're going to we're going to emphasize the parts that keep us in power if it, if it gives us an opportunity to fire people up and get angry about something if we can lie or, or grandstand and make them angry and use that to take out our enemies we're going to do that it gives them a value system to point to and say hey look these are our values and hey look our enemies have violated these values or they've offended our values we should go fight them <laughs> and well each of these different regions has different attitudes towards that you might say, where's Brandon the Builder? Because I mentioned four of these major founding figures, and he is right; should be right there with them as far as uh, the, the Great Houses. But he's got his own pair of episodes. Yes, pair. I've been working on this episode so long that it grew so big that I had to chop it in half. Like, the Sword Ice, two parts, <laughs> scripted ones. So those are going to be pretty thorough, pretty fun. We also have an episode on that. Nice King isn't a founding figure. He's just an important, legendary figure. And the Night's King episode includes information on Simeon Star Eyes and Night's Queen, who are, of course, other figures. Those are characters that we can deal with a bit later because even though the Age of Heroes is not super well understood in terms of what happened when, like what was at the beginning of the Age of Heroes, what was at the end, things, some things we can say for sure happened after the Long Night and some things before. And so things that had to do with Night's King, things like that, we'll save for after because next week we'll be taking on the Long Night unbroken great houses since the Age of Heroes, meaning since the Age of Heroes, they've been in place and have ruled the whole time. Stark, Lannister. You could almost say Durrandon, but not really, but the the Durrandon bloodline still exists. It was just taken over by the Baratheons. And then you could sort of say the Grey King. The Grey King has so many descendants, but all the royal lines of the Iron Islands descend from the Grey King. So that one isn't really unbroken in terms of one house. It's just that tradition of being ruled by the great King's descendants is held. They just all all come from one family, whereas they do in Stark or Lannister or arguably Durrandon. A uh, similar situation exists for unbroken capital since the Age of Heroes. Winterfell's been the capital, although it, they hadn't conquered all of the North back then. Same goes for Casterly Rock. It's been the spot, Highgarden, Storm's End. Now, the area is newer. For example, Sunspear is, wasn't the capital of Dorne until much later. It wasn't during the Age of Heroes, so those don't count. Age of Heroes' bloodlines that are still extant. Of course, the Gardener bloodline is is pretty much gone now. They're not included in the Unbroken Great House, a tidbit here.
1: You say pretty much gone. Is there... Are you, are you just allowing for something that might still be out there? Yeah. you know that there's some person? Or It's just
0: kind of impossible to believe that given everything. It's, It's not known or it isn't specified. But certainly that house doesn't hold power anymore either. The Tyrells claim descent from Garth Greenhand also. So maybe they don't come directly from Garth's first son, which is the line that started the Gardner house, but they would all have Garth Greenhand as their ancestor in that sense. So you still have that to fall back on. The so Lannister bloodline is still there. It's quite well still there. There's lots of Lannisters. Like I said, the Durrandon bloodline is still there. There's not a lot of Durandans, but they're, they're there. The Iron Isles, of course, still going. Now, here's an extra interesting one. House Dustin, they're not a great house, but back in this era, they sort of tried to be, or in modern times, they connect themselves to that, which is they connect themselves to the High King, the first king of the first men, a guy with no name, just that was his title, Some people, especially those in the Reach, argue that is Garth Greenhands. Now, people in the North say, no, they're separate figures, especially the Dustins. But that's kind of another example of a bloodline that's been around since the Age of Heroes that's still there, that isn't necessarily holding great power now, but is still pretty formidable. Dustins are important, but they're not the Starks. Although she certainly wanted to be. (laughs) That's part of her story.
1: I kind of feel bad putting you on a spot here because this didn't even occur to me. I wish I had thought of this beforehand and even researched it myself. And it's almost a two-part question. In the world outside of Westeros, do we know what the oldest or most established or whatever house is? Is there some cool. yeah.
3: ancient, well, in ancient I Carthian
1: family or mm-hmm. what's that? Ut. Yeah, the Yetish have sort of an analog for China
0: or ancient what would have been called Cafe, which is what people in the West called the lands of the East that they imagined as somewhat China-like, that would be a, a reasonable guess because China has...
3: They just have such a history. They have
0: and they're so good at recording. It. Yeah.
3: Like China
1: has so much recording. Yeah, we just, in,
3: in, specifically in the, in the Empire of Ut, we know so much about all these different emperors, maroon emperors. I, I feel like they know that they're descended from the Scarlet Emperors or the Maroon Emperors. I, I feel like they have that history because they are f- familiar with it.
1: How old are those emperors compared to the age of heroes? Mm. Probably older, but maybe similar. Yeah, the
3: golden empire is like
0: probably
1: older.
3: Yeah, it's it's a range
1: of time. I know the
3: golden empire would have been after the first long night, anyway, which would
0: put it the same age if the long night was a you know universal thing.
3: And it's eleven dynasties long. That's a lot of thousands of years. Yeah. It says some di- some Yitish dynasties lasted no more than half a century, whereas others endured for seven hundred years.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the Long Night sort of just it, screwed up a lot of history. I think is what it says. Yeah. It's like, a lot of, you may have had some of these things intact before the Long Night, but it was like a reset, you know. And, but yeah, and, I, I, yeah, I, th- I
3: think the Golden Empire would cross over with the Age of Heroes, so it would be yeah. contemporaneous with it, essentially.
0: We tend to operate over the long night being a global thing, which would have thrown a lot of these things into chaos or caused them to have to sort of restart or you know if they didn't have records before the long night, then it's pretty hard to keep to ha for them to have well, like a cultural memory of what happened before it. If they wrote things down, well that's different, and supposedly at least some places in like ashai and maybe e t had some written records before the long night but that's something we'll be able to come back to a bit later. Certainly, it is a part of the world of ice and fire, and that is one of the topics we've already got a guest lined up for. Mm.
1: What's so this? I appreciate you, you humoring oh,
0: to tell the us? guest is Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast. So he Fun. knows his stuff. He lives in China and uh, is a China history podcaster. So <laughs> he will, and he's read the world of ice and fire and all Game of Thrones stuff. So he'll have some good good takes for nice. us, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, but he's got all kinds of parallels we didn't key in on. I bet you're right, Sean. I bet you're right. Yeah. Kind of a follow up question to what I just asked, and I appreciate you humoring me is what do you think the perspective of Karth, Bravos, other parts of the world, what do they think of Stark's tradition, old house from the first minute? That's cute. Or who are the Starks? Or like, They are a respected house. What do you think the perspective around the world is of these different houses? What do they think of Garth Greenhand? Are they aware of him as a a legendary character or whatever?
0: I'm not sure that they'd be aware of Garth Greenhand. Maybe if, if there's anyone they're aware of as far as major famous mythical figures, that would be one of them. I suspect that they respect the power of these houses, but look on them culturally as savage because they think their cultures are older. The common refrain, right? Like the nobles of one culture very often think that if their culture is older, then they're the more refined group. The age of houses is such a fallback to superiority, (laughs) right? Some of these houses, you can see what happens when these bloodlines go extinct. Gardner is extinct, as we said, or mostly extinct. And because of that, it maybe has made the closeness of lineage to Garth, Greenhead, matter even more, as without the gardeners around, it's not clear who the top house is, and so there's a little squabbling that happens. You don't have an obvious number one. People have to fight for it. Nina points out that Casterly could be another example like, like Durrandon, where if one of the various stories about Land the Clever is accurate that he married in, or whether through trickery or forcibly or what have you, he married the Casterlys and they became the Lannisters, so that would still be Technically, that would mean their bloodline is part of that. But otherwise, the casualties are gone. The original king of the Vale supposedly was the Griffin King. That was his line. The bronze kings of House Royce are still around. Not the kings, but the Royces are. But the Griffin King, that's just That's just like a couple of lines. We don't know what the deal with that is. That's a really ancient, not well-remembered story, but it sounds cool. We don't know whether there was any griffins or <laughs> if it was just like a cool stylized thing or, or what have you, but if George wants to tell us more, I'm all ears. Big, floppy, griffin ears. Wait, what kind of ears do griffins have? <laughs> I think they have point. They have Don't they have lion ears? Yeah, I guess they do. Yeah, like
3: pointed. Yeah, I don't think floppy.
0: I was thinking of elephant ears on... Um, <laughs> My griffins have elephant yeah, ears. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you, can make, you can
3: make whatever kind of griffin you want.
0: So other bloodlines that are still extant, meaning extant and extinct, or when you're sp- saying those words, you got to pronunciate. Pronunciate? Enunciate very clearly.
2: Pronunciate. <laughs>
0: I can't even pick the right words, let alone say them clearly. Bolton, for example. Bolton's been around since the Age of Heroes. They were kings to start off, and they had to bend the knee to Winterfell, and it's apparently still the same bloodline. Umber. Mm. Manderly is super interesting because they were bloodline Age of Heroes that moved from the south to the north. We've got two whole episodes on them. And they should still be somewhat original, I suppose. Blackwood, also have episodes on them, also two. And that's another one that did kind of the reverse. They moved from north to south rather than south and north. And they should still be OG in that sense. Bracken right there with them, basically, without the move from the north part. Uh, Redwine, Tarley, Florent, House Ball, House Peak, House Beesbury, House Bulwer. A lot of these reach houses, especially, but a lot of them just around. This is by no means a comprehensive list. If there's some that you think are your favorites, go ahead and tell us why.
1: My favorite is House Beard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that brave stance of, of never shaving is really speaks to you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, some of the founding figures are godlike. That's one of the things I think that sets them apart above. It's, it's something that enables them to say, hey, we're the most powerful of these ancient houses because our founding figure was a god, whereas yours was just someone cool, (laughs) which is not as fancy as a god, right? The Grey King lived for a thousand years, had a mermaid wife. Garth Greenhand had many wives and a huge variety of supernatural deeds. Duran marries Eleni, who is the daughter of goddess of wind and uh, god of the sea. So that's interesting, right? There's... More God's blood on that side. And Brandon supposedly descended from Garth Greenhand, possibly not, but has Greenseer powers and an extended lifespan, just like almost all these others. Land the Clever, his descent is either from Garth or from the Andals, or just nobody knows. And he also has the Extreme Age. All these figures have long lifespans. Land's is like the shortest of 300 years
1: there are a lot of characters in the bible that are like you know super long ages yeah like methuselah it's almost like a i don't know the the word you use for someone who's super old and he was like 960 years old but he wasn't like by far the oldest he wasn't some weird rare exception like uh, several characters were 900 something years old noah i think was at least 700 years old and a lot of them like had kids at age 500 or something Whoa. like that. You know what I mean? And there's uh, a lot of interesting things around this. One is that the Mesopotamians believed that living to be a thousand years meant you were divine. Oh. So the thought is that they were, when, as they were writing the Bible, they were deciding they can't be over a thousand years because that means they're divine and they're not. There's only one God. But they were really special people. So they were almost a thousand years old. That's an idea behind it. Some people think that maybe it was, uh, they were measuring months or something instead of years. And that makes the lives a little bit more reasonable ages. But then, but when they, some of them had kids at age 500, but some of them had kids at age 100, which means they would have had, they would have been like 10 years old. (laughs) That doesn't quite add up either, you know? So, Anyway, lots. Of you can imagine, the the you know, some people think it's literal and they just live that long. There's theories about how maybe the atmosphere was different or their diets were different or whatever. Yeah. But one thing I find interesting and kind of see this in this mythology and George's mythology and most mythologies is very male centric. You oh, know yeah. who the oldest woman in the Bible, who the oldest woman in the Bible was? Does it not eat? 127. Okay, yeah, yeah, like okay, all the men were like a thousand, oh, and all women's yeah, yeah. only hundred. And they hardly even mention any of the women's ages yeah. in the first place. Like maybe they're older women, but they never tell us. And we can see all these heroes were naming. I think
3: they're a I mean, Sean, women. have you never heard you don't yeah. ask a woman her age? Uh,
1: <laughs> apparently that's an old <laughs> <It's>, tradition <yeah. laughs> established in the Bible. Yeah. But in the Bible, these thousand, hundreds, three, five, nine hundred year old ages, that's kind of conservative. A lot of other mythologies, they lived thousands of years. That's a little more common in other uh cultures, Chinese cultures and stuff. They had people live thousands of years. Yeah. merely 900 is more reasonable. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Only this is a little bit, right? <laughs> I really appreciate
0: takes like that because I, I wasn't raised on the Bible. So a lot of these stories, a lot of people know pretty well. They've known since a young age. I, they went right over my head. George would certainly know them though. He comes from a Roman Catholic family and in an era where the Bible was more a lot more prominent. Certainly, he you know, another idea, I wonder little George wondering about that, like 700, like talking to his like school teacher, like 700 year old person, like, what the heck's that? How did that pop? George is asking like 12 questions and they're just getting sick of him. Like, shut up, kid. He just, <laughs> that's, that's I how it was.
1: Writing. Yeah, just accept it. He's like, nah, <laughs> I'm not going to just accept so, it. So another idea, which again relates to the histories here is that given the idea that maybe the Bible is trying to create this history or send these messages or maybe even establish its validity, right? That having these super old ages allows the potential for characters from generations to have talked to each other. Mm. So it's possible that Noah and Adam were contemporaries of each other if they both lived to be 800 years old. Does that make sense? Yeah, And so it connects those old stories to more new characters or bloodlines. You can see the same thing here and why there's a certain value to these characters being older. It means it gives a connection to the generations to the different families and cultures and stuff.
0: Yeah, and it also uh, makes the figure that they're tracing their descent from just more imposing and powerful. And of course, the descendants of this person who lived a thousand years and set up everything about our culture. He's responsible for this and that. All these things that we have today. Of course, we should revere him. Of course, we should... the, fa- the people Name our did. kids after him. Yeah, exactly. And then that morphs into... The close, people closestly related to him are the ones that have the greatest right to rule. And, and the people that have that are rich and powerful and, and keep that system in place. But you're, it's really, you're, you're right to point out the overwhelming maleness of it all. Even the figures who are female, uh, like the descendants of Garth, are generally just known for who their children are. Oh, that's true for a lot of these men, too. But still, it's true. Just they're often not assigned to other deeds. And even in the case of, say, mm, Ellen who's pretty important. We don't know any, really much, anything about her other than that she abandoned her parents and gave up her immortality. And there's not much else about her, right? So she thinks she would be pretty interesting, but they're more concerned about descendant from the man because that's just how these laws work, right? The laws are the firstborn male. Yeah, I mean, to be
3: fair, during God's grief, we don't really know much about him either yeah little, that's true like, i, mean, I guess we well, I mean, you know he built the castle yeah like that's a thing he did but you know and maybe his name is evocative
0: well, they don't she- name things after her you know what i mean like yeah. like uh, the castle like maybe yeah, if we yeah. had a close look like, at storms maybe this would be I's gate or something like that like there's a billion durans you know yeah yeah true the, mm-hmm. the name just comes up. i don't know like they don't name uh, there's no I baratheon right that name that i know of oh, wait or is there
3: I thought there was an L not Baratheon, but maybe I'm
0: wrong. We were just talking about naming your kids after them. Well, there's tons of Durans or, or that last name, but was this? I don't know any. I don't know any L Maybe there is one. I just didn't. Uh, I didn't know. Or similar names like L A or L N or something like that.
3: No, I, I think there's just yeah. I'm just thinking of the Whiffer ones that. The, or Ellen yeah. inspired, like Ellen Baratheon. Yeah, that's what I, I think. That's just what I was thinking of because there is an Ellen Baratheon.
0: Yeah, okay. So maybe uh, that's, that might be a, a relation. Yeah, Ellen A is pretty similar.
3: Your root form. There's, uh, yeah.
0: But there also isn't, say, um, Elenda. Ellen. <laughs> the point being there, I think there's part of it is they don't want to inspire young women to be great. They want, them to, they want to inspire them to have children and be docile. So you don't see women, girls named Flores either. Like Flores the Fox is a ah. big important kick character. I don't know anyone named Flores. Yeah,
3: I don't think you should <laughs> name your child Flores.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that one. She's known for keeping for me having them. three husbands and uh, secret from each other. So maybe that's not something to aspire to. <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> But that's part of the point. Like that's the thing they remember about her. And if a man did that though, they would aspire.
1: They would name their kids after him. So
0: yeah. So the, the double standards are they're familiar double standards. They're these are ones that exist in the real world. So um they're traditional double standards. Yeah. Yeah. Whoops. Now if we, by look- the way,
3: Nina does point out oh, there are, there are a couple flories. the There's is Baratheon, even.
0: Okay, cool. I, I guess I'm selling her short a little bit. But yeah, yeah there was a Floris, Wasn't that during the dance? Was that yeah, one, one of was, the daughters uh, of Boros? Yeah, Boros. There is a daughters. Okay, yeah. So there's a, yeah. they, they occasionally happen. Okay. But yeah, it's not. And some of these, to be fair, George hadn't invented the name Flores when he wrote book one. If he had, <laughs> there might be a Flores uh, in book one. So that's also part of it. These legends have been fleshed out over, t- over real time as well. But you'll notice in all this talk, we didn't mention really the Riverlands. We barely mentioned the Vale and Dorne because they don't really have similar figures right there. Like the Vale's founding figures are either the First Men versions are, are gone and thus not propped up by the ruling Andals. They, they, they would encourage people to forget that stuff, if they aren't connected to it themselves, which they're not. Or in Dorne, where there's just there's no unifying grand Dornish figure until Nymeria, right? Nymeria is exactly that, but she is way in the future from where we're at now. And house like House Uller, they don't have a god or even a founding figure. House Ironwood, the most powerful house in Dorne, for so long. There's no first Ironwood. They don't remember his name, at least not in a way that's written down for us. So uh, it's super interesting to look at all these differences and and different ways this comes out different things that they value within each region and each culture and how that still impacts the current characters and and what they put forth as values. Let's talk uh, briefly about syncretism. The definition of syncretism is the combining of schools of thought and or beliefs, particularly theology, mythology and religion, when it happens in culture or art or politics it has a different name for culture or art it's eclecticism. And for politics, it's syncretic politics. So it's, you know, <laughs> same word. There's a lot of it in Westeros. A lot of it is regional. Let's start with a real world example. This is one that's particularly familiar to a lot of y'all, which is Christmas honors the birth of Christ, right? But in practice, it contains a lot of traditions that have nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus. For example, I'm sure Jesus doesn't care if you deck the halls with boughs of holly or pile that tree with fun ornaments or sing all about it. But those songs celebrating said decking of halls and the rest aren't exactly hymns, are they? Ask Jesus, he'd say, yeah, that's got nothing to do with me. (laughs) There were gifts at Jesus's birth, or at least not long after. So that's an example where the two traditions have some overlap, but it wasn't, you know, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and holly. And the three wise men gave those gifts without wrapping them or placing them under a tree. Right, they were just here. You go. (laughs) As far as we know, maybe they did wrap it, but I don't think so because I don't think wrapping paper existed back then. But maybe they had it in a little bag or something. I don't know. Now, Christmas trees do often have a star on top, and that star commemorates the Star of Bethlehem, right, which guided the three wise men to Jesus when he was born. Jesus then took the myrrh, used it with the frankincense, like MacGyver, to bring down the Star of Bethlehem. Then he forged dawn and gave it to the people who went on to found House (laughs) Dane. And he did all that in the morning, which is why it's called The Sword of the Morning. <laughs> no, but see, but you see what I'm saying? Like these, I didn't know MacGyver lived back then. Right? See, <laughs> so many of you learn a lot by listening to our show. <laughs> and I think that's really neat because there's just things that people want to do and they associate it with something else they want to do with their religion or what have you. And I have no problem with that. But it is fascinating how things that don't really belong get mashed together sometimes
1: and we just say, yeah, okay, that's how it works. Especially the the more time passes. Yes. The more you forget or don't care or aren't taught about the roots of it for better or worse but you still accept it as part of your culture your traditions your ceremonies and and when more and more time passes I mean, we could go on and on about like the Greeks and Romans and even like yeah. the Egyptians a lot of the Mediterranean mythologies are all bled together they absorbed pieces of each other I, I think there was maybe even was like a belief among people that there were the same gods and different cultures had come up with different names for them. But even that idea is a little challenged because there were definitive differences between like Venus and Aphrodite. But now we just think of them as one was Roman, one was the Greek, but they were very different. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, but they were also
0: very similar. So, yeah, both. Yeah, a little both. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. And I, one thing to add on to what you're saying there is that the values have to keep up. Like, if certain values of a religion become pretty unpopular, they have a choice to make whether to keep that orthodoxy. Or whether to change with the times and sort of adapt and stay current, stay relevant and keep up with what, keep up with what the young people are doing without compromising too much or they lose the old guard, right? And that's just mm-hmm. a lot of back and forth. And for example, not to be too real, the Catholic Church is constantly under fire for not adopting some more modern values. Um, and they're, they're com- but they're, of course, under a lot of pressure to, to continue to be the same types of Catholics that they've been for a thousand years or what have you.
1: It's worth noting that they don't ignore modern mm, values or changes or whatever. For example, they've accepted uh, evolution. Yeah, not they, wild. I mean, not all of them ex-communicated have. excommunicated Galileo. Have, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but the pillars of the policymakers, if you will, of the Catholic Church have said evolution is not incongruous with our beliefs
0: right and which it's not and it's not right it doesn't seem like it should be it's like why not say god did that god made evolution you could, there's nothing there's no reason why you yeah. can't believe that as far as i'm concerned i think <laughs> that
1: the, that i i'm hesitant to uh, where quite to give the credit but i think even like the ages of these old characters mm. noah and methuselah and all i think that officials have said yeah it could be symbolic of something else. They might have meant something different by the word year at that time. Like We can reconcile this in ways that make more scientific sense.
0: Which makes sense. By sticking to the literal stuff, that's where you get so much disagreement. That's where so many problems have. It seems better to be flexible with these interpretations because yeah, that's when you don't have these big disputes. That's when you don't have splits within churches because, yes, there's syncretism of different religions. There's also... Schisms within single religions, right? Protestant versus Catholic. That's basically comes down to disagreements on the orthodoxy, like what these interpretations are. A lot of that, you know, of course it's
1: probably more splits within Christianity than any other religion. I never thought about that before, but just think how many like mm. scores and scores of so even versions. like yeah. how many different Baptists there are, yeah. like divisions within a division, you know. And they usually aren't like at war
0: with each other. I don't even know if that needs clarifying, but some, obviously sometimes they yeah. are. But most of the time they just yeah, I don't believe that. You do, and then you go about your day, and <laughs> they, you know the other person goes about their day. But taking it back to Westeros, sometimes it just doesn't work. There's just some versions of some religions just don't have flexibility. They are nouns. There was an attempt to consider the drowned god as an aspect of the stranger for a while during the Targaryen era, but that did not work. The drowned god—it just doesn't. It doesn't work very well. It, it doesn't lend itself to mixing. Uh, it's preaching, destroy everyone else, you know? (laughs) So so it doesn't really, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. (laughs) And for example, on the other end, the worship of the old gods seems to have syncretized, if that's even a word, pretty well. It seems to have just been absorbed fairly well. Yeah, there was problems. Don't get me wrong. There was burning of werewoods and all sorts of issues. But in the long run, it seems to have reached a, a point that it works together right and, and i think part of the reason is there aren't priests of the old gods out there arguing and preaching and saying this is how it is there's no one to argue it there's no text to interpret it you, you can all it's by nature by nature a bit more flexible whereas the drowned god stuff they also don't have anything written down but they do have priests and those priests within the ironborn culture have a lot of power they're not about to compromise so easily I'm also glad you brought up Greek and Roman stuff, Sean, because there was Roman Christianity, not to be confused with Roman Catholicism. But Emperor Constantine, perfect example, he was pro-Christian, but he also encouraged worship of Sol Invictus, a.k.a. the sun. They're not supposed to worship the sun in Christianity.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Does he shut up about the sun?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you can see, he just tried to make it work. Yeah, I think people will go for this. They'll go for merging these concepts together. And if they don't, well, we can we can change it. 80 years later, after Constantine, pagan worship was banned outright, which is a pretty big change from trying to mash some of the stuff together and include it. You said earlier, Sean, the era and what the people want have a lot to do with it. But sometimes the people want something because they get tricked into wanting it or they get you know, propagandized or... Conned it's into it. Or, yeah. yeah. Now here's another example, but now we're back in Westeros. Arianne 2 wins a winner.
3: Arianne had once heard her father and Maester Kellyan arguing with the Septon about why the north and south sides of the Sea of Dorne were so different. The Septon thought it was because of Durin God's grief, the first Storm King, who had stolen the daughter of the Sea God and the Goddess of the Wind and earned their eternal enmity. Prince Doran in the Maester inclined more toward wind and water and spoke of how the big storms that formed down at the Summer Sea would pick up moisture moving north until they slammed to Cape Wrath. For some reason, the storms never seemed to strike at Doran, she recalled her father saying.
1: I know your reason, the septum had responded. No Dornishman ever stole away the daughter of two gods. <laughs> Let's get this straight. This septum who
0: worships the seven, is saying the sea god and goddess of wind are mad at Durin and his ancestors, t- you know, 10,000 years later, or what have you, right? <laughs> years later. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Does he really believe that? Or, or is that syncretism? I'm not sure if it's even syncretism. It's just, it could just be two beliefs coexisting, right? The seven doesn't have anything to do with this tale at all. He's not involving the seven in this. He's just accepting that this happened before they were around, or I'm not sure. And it's not that important for us to decide which is syncretism and which isn't because the point is how to understand what works in Westeros. Whether it's syncretism, whether it's overlap, whether it's coexisting, doesn't really matter which term you apply. The point is that's how it works here. And I think that's really neat. It's its its own brand of that. Nina says, "I, I actually do like to think that this is an example of syncretism between the faith and the Age of Heroes that maybe the faith views Durin as a sort of virtuous pagan a man who defied the false gods of the sea and wind and who chose Storm's End, might be seen as a sort of bastion of faith against these false religions. Even though Durin was obviously not a follower of the Seven, the faith might have seen his story as one where the hero recognizes an earlier polytheistic religion as false, refuses to worship it, sort of prefigurement of the triumph of the faith over the worship of the old gods and Westeros. Like how the, over time, you see who won out over time. The faith is current and strong and present because that they're the ones that Cream rises to the top, that kind of thing. Maybe that's what the Septon is saying.
1: One, I like Nina's thought there that, especially over time, as the seven gain more of a hold on how the story goes in history, it, it makes sense that that's how they'll want to spin that. But I think the average person still likes the original myth story more. And uh, just something I've been stirred up thinking about as we talk about this is that the way it works, you, you said basically in Westeros here, seems, even though it's not exactly syn- Synchronized <laughs> syncretic, or whatever yes, uh, right, uh, is at least for the most part right now, that they just coexist. like mm. people constantly say the old gods and the new, right? Yeah, that's not really blasphemous. And I imagine maybe the priests the seven don't really like that, but they have to accept it because so many people think of it that way. but I think I feel the people more in the north or maybe the Dornish people who more in the the fringes, they're more okay with the idea of like, we have our old gods, but it doesn't mean yours can't also exist, yeah, right? right? Like, sure, there could be a drowned god, and all these gods, yeah, they're all out there. We just worship these particular ones, but all these are out there. I think the seven are a little bit more like, there aren't any other gods. You certainly shouldn't be worshiping any other gods, but they're not like cracking down on that. Yeah, that make sense? In, in some cases, smartly. It, yeah, <laughs> they
0: probably couldn't. There's just too much, those beliefs are just too much out there. You can't just deny that Durin ever existed when... The ruling house of Storms End, you calls themselves that. There's just there's zealotry and then there's zealotry that just no one's going to even respond to. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's just no one's going to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the first of our figures, the man they claim to be the first men of the first men. Some people claim that anyway, so he's a good place to start. An example of this very thing. There's all sorts of overlap or syncretism or coexisting. With Garth Greenhand, let's start with a quote.
3: A thousand tales are told of Garth in the Reach and beyond. Most are implausible and many contradictory. In some, he is a contemporary of Brand the Builder, Bland the Clever, Durn God's Grief, and the other colorful figures of the Age of Heroes. In others, he stands as the ancestor of them all. Garth was the high king of the first men, it is written, it was he who led them out of the east and across the land bridge to Westeros. Yet, other tales would have us believe that he preceded the arrival of the first men by thousands of years, making him not only the first man in Westeros, but the only man, wandering (laughs) the length and breadth of the land alone and treating with the giants and the children of the forest. Some even say he was a god.
0: If he was a god, it would make a lot of that rest of that stuff make sense. (laughs) In addition to the green man appearance, he's got a variety of other aspects. Another Greek myth that vaguely applies here is Dionysus, who wandered all over and planted vines. Just an aspect of Dionysus is that he's a stranger; he comes from the east. Even to Greeks, he wasn't necessarily born in Greece. He came from elsewhere and brought his fancy plants <laughs> from there and spread them here and then elsewhere, and that's. Very similar to what, we're, what we hear about Garth Greenhand, isn't it? Maybe less focused on the wine part of it and the partying aspect and the, the mystery aspect, more on the fertility and growth and humans surviving in a wild land, but definitely some familiar aspects. Then one of Garth Greenhands is Gilbert of the Vines, who also has a little bit of Dionysus too, because he's very focused on the wine aspect. So not just fertility, wine, and agriculture, but this traveling part. So that's the we part showed, of Dionysus that gets forgotten, I think.
3: We showed some art of Gilbert of the Vine. It, earlier, I had a little slideshow that played of oh, the different nice. children of Garth Greenhand and Aziz's podcast partner Kyle of Band Media and a Podcast of Surprise this is Gilbert of the Vines. That's, That's right,
0: Kyle of the Vines, Gilbert of the Kyle. Okay. Of course, if if it wasn't clear what I meant by the wandering part is yeah, you know, coming across the Arm of Dorne, so going from Essos to Westeros. If Garth was supposedly in some traditions the first one to come across, then that would be a similarity to Dionysus and other. Wandering real-world figures or other traveling figures. I guess Odin was a traveler too, for example, although he wasn't spreading fertility; he mo- more spread stories and things like that. But still, uh, certainly an ancient tradition of travelers. Uh, hot tip to our friend Crowfood's daughter: points out another connection in the Gallo-Roman religion. Serunos or Cernunos rather, was a deity depicted with antlers, seated cross-legged, and in association with stags, horns, serpents, dogs, bulls, rats, usually holding or wearing a torque and has been seen either holding a bag of coins or grain and a cornucopia. So again, just spreading fertility, having antlers, you know, all these things. So there's dozens of varieties of this being, Sir Nuno's, uh, but is, tends to be Celtic. Again, the spread of agriculture knowledge is really big. Now, you wonder, is that offensive or demonic to the children of the forest? You know how Aaron l- says, oh, you're the, the drowned god is the only real god. All these others are just demons. The During God's grief example, he doesn't deny that they exist. He denies that they're worthy of worship. He denies that they're gods and instead says that they are demons. And yeah, I wonder, like a guy that is working against nature to carve out all these things that prevent nature from going in their place, like perversions of nature. I wonder if that's like a, I wonder if they look on him as evil. He supposedly acquired their powers and worked with them, but that doesn't necessarily have to be true. I don't know. It's just kind of a conundrum to me. What do you think? Or maybe that's just, maybe I'm just overthinking it.
1: It's at least possible, and when I my I want to spin it positively, that they're impressed, like, oh wow, we didn't realize you could do that with nature, and that's how I would like to. He wasn't cutting
0: down trees, so there's that, yeah, 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 Mm, makes sense.
1: Okay, maybe they even have some respect for his power, like, whoa, you can manipulate nature, you know? Sure, okay, yeah. Or if he truly
0: was one of the Green Men that came from the Pact, well, then they would have he would be a respectful figure. He would be something that emerged from that agreement, and they would want to uh, honor that. They don't, wouldn't want to break their end of the deal. They wouldn't want humans going back to chopping down trees or what have you. So if he's associated, Yeah, it like seems that. like
1: he couldn't have been too evil or perceived as too evil for his legacy to be so positive.
0: Yeah, he may have done some bad stuff, but it looks like the good outweighed it or the bad wasn't so much, as you say, to, to take over as the narrative.
3: Yeah, because we just really don't hear anything bad about him.
0: Not really. No, not really. Basically, things that he does that seem like he shouldn't do, are written as explicitly good. Like sleeping around with so many different women. It's like, no, the women wanted him to do that because he's magical and so they're trying Yeah, there's not really stronger. there's
3: not really any Zeus rape stories No. him.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's not he's not convincing or conning these women, which Zeus does. Yeah. <laughs> Zeus like pretends to be he shapeshifts and yeah. is like, aha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's none of that. You're right. There's Garth Green has not listed as a shapeshifter. Now, you need to just do it once. Nope. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Nina writes, Garth Greenhand uniquely seems to have survived as sort of a fertility god figure, even while the first men worshipped the old gods, almost as a sort of dual worship. High Garden, for example, was literally founded around a throne supposedly planted by Garth Greenhand, yet it also contains a godswood with three werewoods. I wonder if that is because Garth Greenhand's legend is inevitably tied up in teaching the first men how to farm, quote, making the land bloom, so to speak. Given the importance of agriculture in the Reach, perhaps more than anywhere else in Westeros, it makes some sense that the people of the Reach would be reluctant, to surrender their cultural memory of the figure who brought or is supposed to have brought the knowledge of agriculture to them. Two, because the children of the forest were not farmers, worship of Garth Greenhand could perhaps be easily reconciled with worship of the old gods. The deep forest's not particularly prevalent in the Reach, are the place where we worship the old gods and respect the children. The open fields are the place where we venerate Garth Greenhand and farm. Yeah, that's true. They don't overlap each other too much. There isn't like dispute over which zones of nature or aspects of living that they control, which is such a common way for naturalistic religions to view the world. There's a river god over the other river. There's a different river god. This forest has a god. So this separation that Nina is describing here makes a lot of sense to me. She also writes this dual worship might have been made even easier with the pact when the land was clearly and by mutual agreement delineated. So they actually have this chi- children of the forest zone and the first men's zones, which so that kind of delineates the old God's space and Garth's space in a sense, which I like that thought a lot. Then she says that might go for some of Garth's legendary children, too. The children of the forest were never beekeepers or winemakers or archers for the same type of archers or not, certainly not the type of warriors. But the first men needed those skills. So they would look to their ancestral heroes through Garth as the ones who enabled or taught them the things that gave them livelihood, that allowed them to survive in this wild land. Here's
1: another quote
0: about Garth himself.
1: Where he walked... Farms and villages and orchards sprouted up behind him. About his shoulders was slung a canvas bag, heavy with seed, which he scattered as he went along. As befits a god, his bag was inexhaustible. Within were seeds for the world's trees and grains and fruits and flowers. Nice. It's a
0: bag of holding, huh? Yeah. Those <laughs> so are you D&D players out there. And that was one of the items most sought after, because if you have a bag of holding, all of a sudden you don't have to care about logistics anymore, right? <laughs> It's like, oh my man. My least
1: favorite D&D item. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Logistics matter. <laughs> <laughs> Not with a bag of holding. Yeah, it is, they get kind
0: of crazy with just like everything of holding. You know, it's like, no, my pants have pockets of holding, got a backpack <laughs> of holding. I got a water bottle of holding. Yeah, just infinite everything. So, yeah, I really like what Nina wrote there about that's so delineating the zones and how cultures would have seen those things. Sometimes I forget how distinct forest versus meadow versus brook are. In these old viewpoints, how separate they are as their own regions or what have you—miniature, micro regions or what you want to, whatever you want to call them—and the concept too of making the land work for you, and how she brings out what the Reach's source of power is—the fertility of the Reach is what gives it such great power over the other regions, wealth, population. So of course they're going to celebrate that. It makes sense in the same way that you can't just forget that the Stormlanders value Duran. You can't just forget Garth Greenhand. So everything has to conclude him. It all starts with Garth. I wish there was a Georgian included some figure like, what's that thing that... Some figure named Wayne. Yeah, exactly. Yes. (laughs) Is that where you're getting? Yes. (laughs) I wanted a Wayne. Like a Wayne is W-A-Y-N. It's like a type of cart, like a I don't know. You want a Wainwright? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Makes George sense. will throw in some <laughs> Muppets, but he won't throw in Wayne and Garth. be <laughs> so, yeah, on Garth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, farm on, Garth. Farm on, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so didn't that bag really, I know we mentioned this briefly last time, but not that bag thing sound like the story, the old stories of Johnny Appleseed, just having a bag. So oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's such a major figure in the Age of Heroes, that's why connection to him might be more important than the Age of Heroes figures in other regions, right? We t- we were uh, touched on that how it really matters to have descent from Garth Greenhand in the Reach, whereas in the North you don't really see people clamoring to connect themselves to Brandon the Builder. It's just accepted. It's kind of just understood. Yeah, the Starks are connected to Brandon the Builder. There you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, there isn't maybe it's just it hasn't come up. But you don't hear a lot of that. It doesn't seem to be a part of the cultural wrangling. You know, they're not like, ah, ah, we're closer to Bart Brand and the Builder than you are. It just doesn't seem to matter.
1: I wonder if maybe it's because the North is more connected to each other than the rest of the realm. Okay. Does that make sense? And all of them are maybe a little closer in their ages or connections to the past. Our house is 3,000 years old. Our house is 3,040 years old. Where, if, When you have the other, in, in like the Reach or the other more southern areas, our house is 400 years old or our house is 3,000 years old. Like, there is more to hold over someone else. There's more different groups of more different ages. Does that make sense? Yeah, so,
0: yeah. It does make sense. And Nina writes, it's interesting to note the sort of mythical propaganda that the Gardners crafted with the legend of Garth Greenhand. Gardeners were no strangers to using mythical descent to support a claim to worldly power. After all, according to E. Yandel, it was, quote, that kinship, the supposed descent of House Gardner from Garth Greenhand's firstborn son, Garth the Gardener, that gave House Gardner the primacy in the centuries that followed for, quote, no petty king could ever hope to rival the power of Highgarden where Garth the Gardener's descendants sat upon a living throne, the oaken seat, that grew from an oak that Garth Green himself had planted and wore crowns of vines and flowers when at peace and crowns of bronze thorns, later iron, when they rode to war. Boy, that's evocative. That is really cool. Guy's like, aspect of peace and plenty. He's got his aspect of war with the thorns and, and all that. So that's neat. I like that. She continues here by saying that the Starks were descendants of Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who was a younger son of Garth. And Brandon of the Bloody Blade is either Brandon the Builder's father, grandfather, something like that. And then by saying the Lannisters are descendants of Floris the Fox or Rowan Goldtree... The Gardeners might have been making a subtle claim, perhaps imperial claim, over the North and Westerlands. After all we know, during the Age of Heroes the, and during the time of the Andals, there were a lot of attempts for the Reach to expand. Given how much wealth they have and large population, you can kind of see why they would think they could. They would just assume that they are stronger than a lot of these neighbors that they have. And this would maybe be long-term granting of Casus Belle for themselves. Be like, look, if we have this legend out there that says Garth Greenhand is the father or ancestor of Brandon Stark, then that gives us claim to the North. Well, maybe they're not going to use that tomorrow. Maybe they're not going to use it in a week, but they might use it in 100 or a 1,000 years. And yeah, if it's there, then it's on the shelf for them. And uh, you can, it's interesting to see how they made sure it applied in a couple different spots, right? It's, it applies to the Lannisters, it applies to the Starks, it applies all over the reach, big, powerful houses like the High Towers and Beesburys and Cranes and bulwers and all that. So that's maybe kind of difficult to pursue a claim in practice, like saying, because of 8,000 years ago, we can do that. But it would enable them to, if they took the throne, if they conquered the North or won it somehow, they would have a foot in the door as to their legitimacy, and then they could work to establish that and to cement that any way they could.
1: I was spinning on the idea that like if you can keep your people really invested in this, that could rally them to war if the time came for it.
0: Yeah, you know? that's true. That's true. Maybe they had thought of that in the old days and then they had designs on the north, maybe when it was more recent, that to the age of heroes. And the stories have lingered. They never got their act together to Invade the north, or maybe they did, and they were stopped at Kalen because it is awfully hard to do that. (laughs) It's really hard to invade the north. No one's ever really done it. That would possibly it was tried, and that was part of the basis for it was these ancient family connections. Or maybe they said, "Hey, look, you want the north to bloom and and flower like the south? Well, you're gonna have to do you have to follow this lead." And if you're a northerner, that's probably part of why you said like the north is more self-contained and has less connection to the south. Like, what would all that mean to them? Like the stories of this blooming and the vines and all that, they're up in the north freezing. Like that does not resonate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like that is another world down there. This is, these are different cultural people, different upbringings, different dangers they have to face day to day, just different lifestyle, different. Yeah. (laughs) So very different returning to the first, that's why there's a in part the dispute, you can really see how the dispute breaks down along political boundaries. <laughs> the People in the South are like, yeah, the first king was Garth. People in the North are like, no, the first king was some entirely other guy who came over before Garth. Y'all are just trying to give Garth stories to the first king. Okay, well then what was his first king's name? I don't know. And it is kind of weird, like a king, like what kind of king leaves all that for a realm that doesn't even exist. He must have been like, it might have been like Nymeria. It might have been that kind of scenario where they couldn't stay anymore. <laughs> Someone else came and conquered them or was pushing them and they left. That is, after all, why the Andals came to Westeros. They were being pushed by the Valyrians. They couldn't stand up to them very well uh, for obvious reasons. They didn't have dragons or you know blood magic or what have you.
1: Yeah, it could have been a harsh winter or a volcano or a... Yeah, that's true. Plague. Climate change, yeah. Like we talked about
0: back or several episodes ago, they're just following the herds. They got to, you know, that's the, yeah. what, what their sustenance. So you got to go where their sustenance is. If the fish, if you, if, if you rely on fish and all of a sudden the lakes are empty, you're moving.
1: Or you're dying, yeah.
0: Yeah. On the other end, we talk about how Garth versus the North, Garth versus the farther South, Dorn. They're like, nah, he's not connected to us in any way. We don't care. None of that's got anything to do with us, and there doesn't seem to be any dispute over that. Maybe some houses in the reach are like, "Oh, we know Garth just ignored their land because it's so pathetic and and sandy." Or mm-hmm. some of them might think, "Yeah, no, no, Garth ha- his influence is there too. Their bloodlines are other. Which is,
3: I mean, I, I feel like them,
0: they, them I feel like they would
3: them. probably say something like, "Well, obviously Garth wasn't there. That's why it's so sandy." Yeah, if he had been yeah. there, you would have good land.
0: That's probably that might be more. Better way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, The more straightforward, like the thing I just said about the north. Like, yeah, it wouldn't be so cold up there if y'all had Garth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'd have better plants. You know, he'd have gotten you some winter roses and winter apples and winter wheat and, you know, (laughs) all these amazing plants. Just leave it to Garth. Instead, they get lemons. (laughs) (laughs) Not a single Mountain Dew in sight. <laughs> no bangs, no no. Garth Green bang. Oh, there was
3: a lot of banging.
0: No, there was a lot of banging. Yeah, Garth did a lot of banging. yeah Green or other colors. <laughs> Speaking of a lot of banging, Robert Baratheon. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that the Tyrells are less closely related to the gardeners than some of the Reach elite. Remember uh, what oh, we, I, I believe later in this episode we have an Elena quote sort of along those lines. But what's happening at the beginning of the book? Is that they're trying to rearrange things, right? They're they're plotting to get Ro- Robert to divorce Cersei and marry Marjorie. Robert has a lot of Garth Greenhand parallels. All these children, the horned antlers. In in our brand of the building episode, there's a whole section on this. And Robert also, kind of like Garth, just goes where he wants, sleeps with who he wants, and parties. That's similar to Garth, right? He just, because he's the king. I want to go down in the crypts. Imagine if some other visitors, like, I want to go down into your ancestral crypts and and do stuff. Be like, you wouldn't even ask. That's offensive. But Robert, he's the king. He goes where he wants. He's the 800-pound gorilla, 800-pound Garth. Likewise, he has a ton of children out there. (laughs) It's not entirely clear which ones are his. Some of them don't even know they're his. (laughs) And that, when he does end up marrying the Tyrells, he, he, or rather, his family ends up marrying the Tyrells. It's not his family. It's the children that aren't actually his children, which is a great metaphor for people claiming descent from Garth Greenhand <laughs> when they probably don't have descent from Garth Greenhand. Here we have people claiming descent from Robert Baratheon <laughs> when we clearly know those are Lannister kids. I appreciate the bookending the paralleling of robert to garth history is written by the winners earlier we brought up how no one brings up garth being this lecher, but robert is by current characters we see that that's definitely what robert is maybe this parallel maybe it's just history has made garth look like a gentleman or like someone that the women threw themselves at when in reality he was a skeezer <laughs> i guess someone who was aggressive and tried to like Touch people inappropriately is always like grabbing people and trying to get them to drink more and that kind of thing. If that was the truth, would they really write that? This figure that they're trying to stand in front of as a symbol of their nobility—I don't know. There's a strong chance that Garth, if he was even real, he was kind of scummy. I don't know. Just want to throw that out there. I don't, I don't. I'm not going to say it's the truth, but let's be.
1: I think it's less likely. Again, maybe I'm being too too optimistic about it, but I think that. Uh, like I said, if it was too bad, I feel like it, he wouldn't have gummed it. Some other person would have taken on all this legendary past role that, rather than him. But th- as soon as I say that, I realize that Robert, we kind of know he's scummy, but I don't know if that will be his legacy, right? Everyone doesn't necessarily know he was sleeping around. He's probably just going to be remembered as a great warrior. Yeah, that's true. He became king and a lot of the other, you know, less savory details of his life probably won't get remembered or written down or especially if, if the Lannisters stay in charge they don't want to be tainted by his yeah. bad part of his reputation.
3: Yeah, whereas like for example if Edric Storm or Endry or if one of his bastards took over Storm's end then yeah his infidelity would be remembered.
0: Yeah, or they yeah. would they, yeah. they might try to smooth it over or whatever they would emphasize the good. They would emphasize what you just said about how he made yeah. friends with everyone. Even his enemies became his friends. That's yeah. a pretty good story to tell yeah. and it's pretty yeah. accurate. Yeah. They and they wouldn't. They would leave out the drinking and the sleeping around, probably, or at least make it sound like well, what it is with Garth was women just threw themselves at him.
1: <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh well, yeah, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. Robert easily could be abusing his position, but we haven't really got stories of rape from him. You know,
0: true. That's true. Uh, not, Although
1: he was violent. He was Cersei, violent towards at least a couple of times, yeah. so, but yeah.
0: but apparently not sexually, because in that story of her, she could always just easily fend him off. Like he was gross and. Yeah. Pushy, but he wasn't like, and he also hit Joffrey, so
1: he hit people. But <laughs> yeah, and we're not trying yeah. to defend, not saying he's not violent at that time, though. In this world, those wouldn't necessarily be marks against him, that's
0: true. Know? Yeah, in the in 10,000 years ago, that would really not be the kind of thing that people would, oh my god, he hit a woman. Yeah, I don't know, I don't think that would, uh, yeah, and, and those. It, Savage times that such things may not be. I mean, like
1: even in modern days, 100 years ago, that wasn't. um, Yeah, you're right.
0: I'm wrong to to act like this is not still happening, too. Obviously, it still does. It's just not as in public. Everyone knows it's wrong. It's people still get away with it in private all the time. Yeah. Um, But I think what we're saying here is maybe 10,000 years ago, even in public, it wasn't necessarily wrong. It might have been something like, yep, well, he was disciplining his wife in public. That's that's our man's right. Yeah, that kind of thing. We don't know, but there's a lot of possibilities. And it's interesting to throw them around and see how they sound. Some of his descendants, there's so many, we're not going to go through them all. We mentioned Floris the Fox and her deal was that she's apparently the...
3: A total uh, smoke show.
0: <laughs> the founder <laughs> indirectly of House Florence, Ball and Peak. And those are really major houses. And we've talked about them various times and various episodes. Currently, the most powerful of those three is House Florent. Ball and Peak have both fallen down the ladder quite a lot, but the Florents are still pretty powerful. Although um, going with Stannis is <laughs> also threatening to reduce them down to a, a lesser house. But Florent, you can see the name is more present there. Florent, Floris, right? That's pretty straightforward. And uh, they do have. Oh, the Ball Fox is
3: relevant too.
0: <laughs> Ballin.
3: <laughs> uh, that's a different, tr- different uh, perspective but okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> fireballing Floris was balling yeah fireballing yeah. interesting too that as Garth's descendants come down the line you look farther down in the ancestry they seem to specialize a bit more and a lot of them are still associated with fertility like more specific rather than just generic farming and fielding and agriculture you have Ellen Eversweet who had a pact with the king of the bees Is this a human who is king of all the bees or is this a bee, like Like a queen bee, bee, but a king? Yeah. With a crown. (laughs) This one's really throwing me here more so than I think it should. It doesn't really deserve as much attention. And I'm really thinking of this king of the bees. For one thing, a king of the bees in Westeros is like, wait. That's I kind of picture
3: it in the same line of some of the skin-changing stuff that Ooh. we get with some of the other characters like Rose of Red Lake. There's getting just getting multiple skin-changing examples and so the idea of Ellen Eversweet interacting with bees makes it seem like she Ooh. could communicate with bees. I don't know.
0: When they talk about skin-changers who are birds and how they just stare at the sky a lot and how just flying just becomes their identity and this the sky becomes their identity. If you're skin-changing to a bee yeah even when I'm in human form, I'm just constantly buzzing, You're just, just humming just a bu <laughs> noise all the time, <laughs> just present, <laughs> speaking of buzzing, Gilbert of the vines would be another example of that with uh, a specific <laughs> <laughs> aspect nice. of nature, wine, of course, then we have apples from both Fossaway and Rowan, and now here comes a real weird one. Here we get into some of the supernatural ones the the other descendants are less about fertility and agriculture and Maybe two different categories. There's the knights who are anachronistic. And then we have these supernatural ones, which let's start with those. We have Harlan and Herndon, who are the brothers of Horn Hill. So Sam and Randall's ancestors. What a weird story. They both married a woods witch, took turns with her, and she gives them extra life. It allows them to live longer as long as they only like sleep with her at midnight or Original something like that. Original thropple. Yeah, the original Threpple. Bizarre, man. Really weird. <laughs> what, are they, what value are they espousing here? What is the. I, I really don't get this one. It's cool in its way. Maybe it's
1: a cautionary tale.
0: Okay. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that one. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, though. Next up, we have. Maybe the Woods Witch was just really hot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was a super hot Woods Witch, or she was using a glamour to seem super hot. Bores the Breaker was the, the guy of House Bulwer, and he gained horns after drinking the blood of 20 bulls. So he got strong after drinking blood. Now that, I think the symbolism behind that is a lot more striking and dark. Blood drinking, blood sacrifice to gain strength. That's what that says to me. That's, that's where that's aiming at. Ooh, Because we have lots of stories of sacrifice, especially tied to the pact to the children, to the worship of the old gods, even as recently as a few hundred years ago, possibly still happening on places like Skagos, as Ramsey, or as Ruth Bolton says, this is a thing that might connect north to south, these cultural traditions of, of old gods and, and blood sacrifice. So that to me is where, what this is suggesting.
3: we got um, some nice art up here I've been showing of all the characters, uh, by the way, and this one is of our good friend Dom, Sartalia from Folkwise. So. Yeah,
0: shout out to Dom. How you doing, buddy?
3: Looking buff in this art, (laughs) like a bull.
0: Yeah, as a bull, you better be looking that way. Buff bull bores the breaker. (laughs) (laughs) We also have Rose of Red Lake of House Crane. I
3: recognize her.
0: Yes, I wonder why. To me so that's really neat just more skin changing in the south more legends of animal skin change animal skin changer, as opposed to what well, yeah, well skin, skin changing changers? i guess a tree and uh yeah i'm going into the table i'm a table skin changer some bark changing <laughs> yeah, yes i am you know, now becoming one with my thermos of coffee <laughs> it's not enough for me to drink it i must become it i don't really have anything to say about rose of red lake i just i just She's appreciate beautiful. the Yes, yeah, she's beautiful. She's beautiful. <laughs> the most loveliest of all the descendants of Garth. Or yes, the most loveliest of all. Period.
3: Yes, mm. thank you, thank
0: you. But do you skin change? Can you? But you don't like birds. See, this know. is the problem. Here.
3: <laughs> I know. She I hate that birds. You didn't <laughs> call me. I hate birds. <laughs> yeah, <That's> irony. Funny.
0: <laughs> yes. Mm. Uh, Turning our attention to the knights and stories of tournaments, which are the most obvious examples of perhaps syncretism or just rewriting history. It may not be syncretism either. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really unclear on what qualifies exactly as syncretism or something that's just similar to syncretism. Anyway, again, it's not important. The concepts overlap all over the place here in Westeros. So we have John the Oak, founder of House Oak and Shield, or Oakheart rather, and um, he's the first knight. <laughs> just like Knights didn't exist for thousands of years later. (laughs) Speaking of, Argoth Stoneskin, a.k.a. the Grey Giant, wins the first ever tournament in Westeros. Now, tournaments don't have to be about knights, but that's the only time we ever hear about them. We were specifically told that martial contests in the north are melees, not tournaments. Now, which does at least show that there were other forms of this, so maybe this isn't an anachronism, but it seems like one. And she married Uthor of the High Tower instead of Argoth stoneskin. She was the prize of the tournament because apparently women can be prizes in tournaments back then. And Nina writes, I like to imagine that Owen Oakenshield, who, quote, conquered the Shield Islands, driving the Selkies and Merlings back into the sea, was the legendary ancestor of House Manderly. Assuming that the Manderly did not change their sigil when they came north, which the Talons did around the time of the Targaryen conquest, just as an example. Then perhaps their family symbol of the Merman pays tribute to Owen's triumph over the Merlins. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. I also like the idea that they had a greater association with the sea because of all the artwork associated with House Mer- uh, is ocean stuff, like leviathans and, and krakens and all that. There's definitely room for them to have maybe started off a little closer to the coast or something like that, which is something we talk about in our House Manderly episode. But yeah, more knightly stuff. Sirwin of the Mirror Shield isn't descended from... Garth Greenhand, and he's another one we have a whole episode on. But not only is he called a knight in the Age of Heroes when there were no knights, but he's, people nowadays say that he was in the Kingsguard, and the Kingsguard's only existed for 300 years. So that's just like the most blatant <laughs> rewriting of history. Who would believe that? Well, a lot of people that are illiterate. That's who. Uh, people that want to believe yeah, it. Yeah, people that want to believe it are like, yeah, I like that. Or people who don't care. They're like, yeah, that story sounds good to me. Nina also says, maybe since he's not a child of Garth, maybe the legends might say he was a son of John the Oak or since he was, the, since John the Oak was the first knight, maybe his descendants were some uh, also knightly. Yeah, that all works. That all works. Neen also says, Speaking of syncretism, I would not be surprised if the faith co-opted the stories and imagery of Garth and some of Garth's children for its own religion. Images of Garth, John the Oak, and Maris the Maid could very easily turn into images of the father, the warrior, and the maiden. The story of Rowan Goldtree might be turned into a faith story. If Rowan's lover left her for a richer rival, then maybe the faith would say the maiden gave Rowan a golden tree as a sort of reward for her purity and virtue. And the moral of the story would be that these are as important as the faith, or to the faith as material wealth. On the flip side, some of these stories would doubtless have been bowdlerized by the faith since Flores' story might become less about polyandry, which the faith doesn't condone obviously, and more about simple cleverness while Harlan and Herndon's mutual sexual relationship with the same woman might have left, been left out, maybe suggesting instead that the beautiful Woods witch was really the crone in disguise who gave them wisdom, which helped them reach that older life. This is a great take. The way, yeah, the cleverness, yeah. the marketing behind the specifics Attempts to syncretize some of these old figures with the very open-ended aspects of the seven, which is important, right? This is something that Septon Maribald reminds people it's not seven gods. That's kind of a common misconception. It's one guy with seven aspects. And in within those seven aspects, there's a lot of wiggle room for different faces and features and garb and demeanors and day-to-day things. So really well said there, Nina
3: my chance to mention that if you want to find all of this art of Garth Greenhand's children on a lovely map of the Reach, you can go to Claradox.de and there is a section on the Reach.
0: Yes, and yeah, some of y'all are obviously listening to this and aren't able to see the images, so we want to make sure you have the ability to go find them.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land.
0: Matt Reese sends a donation, says thanks for all the great content this past year. I hope this little amount helps out. Appreciate that, Matt. Very much so. Matt's a regular on our Friday uh, game streamer, game streams, and he is one of my top advisors. Gives me lots of great advice, helps me keep track. <laughs> so much to keep track of in that game, as, as, Shea, as you well know. It's really a, a luxury to have a, a group of regulars who make sure I don't make mistakes, or at least try to make sure I don't make mistakes. <laughs> Can't stop me from making all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Julie A says, "Question for the panel: Thoughts on the continuation of the Stark name? Seems risky since it's just Rickon, unless a guy takes Sansa's last name or John takes Stark." Yeah, and with John being dead, like it's not even clear if John can procreate, so I'm not even sure about John. Yeah, I
3: think it's just an example of yeah, Sansa's going to continue the name. Like
0: how we've seen that in other cases, for example, the Bail of Bard story. There was no mm. Lord Stark; didn't have a son; he had a daughter only. And that's it's a fairly regular thing. The rules of matrilineal inheritance or the rules of patrilineal inheritance include this exception, which is when there are no males to inherit, it goes to the, uh, the daughter, the eldest the daughter, and the house name, when it's a powerful house like this, the man it becomes a matrilineal marriage. Uh, again, referring to something familiar to people who watch the game streams on Friday, since we do all sorts of marriage arrangements in that uh, game, all sorts of dynastic connections, bloodline formings. I would think Sansa, yeah.
3: Yeah, it really just is. It's who's in power. If Sansa's in power, then she makes a decision to keep her name. Yeah. is really what it comes down to. If she wasn't in power, then the point would, the the issue would be moot.
0: And it's not one of those things where the husband's going to be offended because in a male-dominated culture, he's like, I want my name to be. Nah, he's going to be like, yeah, I want to be a Stark. i get to be
1: part of the Stark <laughs> legacy, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: That, name is, that name is way more powerful than whatever his name is, even if it's like...
1: Unless <laughs> it was a Bolton or some other yeah. powerful or respected housewife.
0: Yeah, then then you might have an argument, but yeah, if it's just someone, then yeah. Stark is... Because Stark is also the name that gives you claim to Winterfell. If you're like, no, I don't want to be a Stark anymore. It's like, well, then you can't have Winterfell. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll be a Stark <laughs> then. Stefan B says, this also makes me wonder, when did the first men transform from Stone Age society to agricultural? Before they moved to Westeros or only after during the Age of Heroes? So this, of course, refers to Garth Greenhand sort of establishing all the stuff and, and the father of agriculture in Westeros. Yeah, did they, when did this all happen? Were they still hunter-gatherers in Essos or were there some of these hunter-gatherer refugees or migrants or were, did this happen... In two different places. Like, was there a Stone Age revolution to kind of turn into the Bronze Age over in Essos? And that came later in Westeros, or maybe some of the Bronze Age exiles made it to Westeros? And that's a really good question. Yeah, I don't, obviously, we don't have an answer. It's
1: a gradual process. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like all of a sudden in one generation, everyone stops hunting deer and starts planting beans. You know what I mean? Even when you plant your fields, yeah. you're not going to harvest them for months. You still need food in the meantime it's a gradual process to make that transition and, and it wouldn't all happen in all places all at once either. So.
0: You probably see it take hold in certain communities and then maybe new communities form from those and they follow along with what worked. And Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of cultural mixing even in ancient times in the real world. There's plenty of evidence that ancient mankind, even ancient Neanderthals and Denisovans understood that incest was bad because of the results it produced. And so they would go farther out to find matches to have marriages. The point being in this context that when you're sharing brides and w- husbands from villages and you have to go a certain distance because you know that the, to, you want to have genetic diversity, then you're also going to learn about what that culture is doing. You're going to see, oh, look at this thing they're farming. Look at this tool they have. Yeah. And then you bring that back to your village and then... Wash, rinse, repeat. Right. Brendan Towngates uh, corrects me on the pronunciation of PECOS. I said PECOS Bill. It's PECOS Bill. So thank you for that. I do appreciate being corrected. I, everyone wants to be right, but I want to be right, right. I want to have, (laughs) so that that means I have to correct myself sometimes. I don't want people to think I'm right. I want to be right. That's the difference, right? Technically right.
1: Yeah, I want to The be- best of both. I, nice. yeah.
3: I can't tell you how many times like I've wanted to say something I'm like okay, wait. Hold on, I need to google how to pronounce this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I've never heard this word said out loud. Yeah,
0: it's only things like that's where you don't realize you're saying it wrong. <laughs> you're like, "Oh, I would have looked that up, but I thought it was I've heard it said that way before, but it was passed on to me wrong and I took it that way."
1: You know, as long as you're doing corrections, I said something slightly wrong last week too. It's more of a personal thing. I said I wasn't totally vegetarian. I meant I'm not totally vegan. Oh. I am totally vegetarian. Oh, oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, that actually I forgot about that, but it surprised me at the time. I thought what you meant was that you occasionally, accidentally eat food because eat, uh, eat food. meat yeah. because I know you don't intentionally ever eat meat. You're just like, yeah. You
1: know. My goal is to not do anything that kills animals. Right. So I will eat eggs or cheese. So that makes me not vegan. But, but I don't want like a leather belt, which is maybe a step beyond vegetarian. So yeah,
0: right? you know, you, you're doing your own version of it and it's consistent and mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. When you explain it. Brendan Towngate didn't just correct my pronunciation. He also said we for sure take on stories even now. One of the tenets of Hinduism, for example, is that Vishnu comes to earth whenever there's an urgent problem that needs to be rectified and that he comes in many forms. This is used to incorporate other religious figures into its own fabrics, such as Jesus or the Buddha. Yeah. And this is just a general comment on how much our lives are not just contained by stories, but informed by stories and how we live our lives. Again, we go back to the Bible. I'm not hating it all, but you know, the stories in the Bible affect a lot of people's lives and they live their lives according to the moral precepts that are expressed in those stories. And, of course, those stories are open to interpretation, and that leads to a variety of outcomes. But the goal there is pretty clear, and I do appreciate that. And it's very true about humans. We do love stories. We sure do. And that's part of why we're here. You can get more of our stories, of our analysis, more of our episodes by going to patreon.com slash Westeros. We have scripted chapter breakdowns of the Beast for Crows Prologue and the North Remembers A Dance of Dragons chapter. We have Where Are They Now episodes on Team Stannis, Tourney of the Hand, and Tyrion in the Veil vale to help to keep track of where the vast number of characters are at the end of the story. You may remember them, but you may not remember exactly where they're at. Or Tyrion is, what about like Shaga? What about Braun? What about mm, Loris's brother Garland. Do you remember where all those characters are? Well, if you what don't know What about Dre? Sure. <laughs> yeah, what about Dre? <laughs> the whole world's forgotten about Dre. And we also have Valar Rurida's by P-O-V. If you don't want to just listen to the chapters in order and you want to focus on a certain character, you could listen to just all the Sansa chapters in a row of our analysis. We also have an episode on Gagasos, the city of blood magic. It almost became the tenth free city. We have an episode on the Red Kraken with our friends over on uh, Radio Westeros, co-made. There'll be more episodes on that time frame containing that character and other characters associated with it. And as I may have said earlier in the episode, we are about to have two Brandon the Builder episodes. The main one will be for all. The second one, which focuses on the buildings and how they were built, that one's going to be patrons only. Also to remind you all what I said before, our Basic Patreon price will eventually go up. Right now, it's still the same. So get it in now, lock it in at the current price, and, and you'll be well. That'll be the price you pay until you cancel. Now we're also moving to make our podcast feed a little more manageable. There's just so many episodes on there now. We're removing some and moving some to be Patron only to uh, streamline everything. So that's another reason to sign up today. That is all the cleanup I have. Let's get right back to the material. Let's head into a discussion on Land the Clever, and we'll start with a quote.
3: In the most common version of the tale, Land discovered a secret way inside the rock, a cleft so narrow that he had to strip off his clothes and coat himself with butter in order to squeeze through. Once inside, however, he began to work his mischief, whispering threats in the ears of sleeping casterlies, howling from the darkness like a demon, stealing treasures from one brother to plant in the bedchamber of another, rigging sundry snares and deadfalls. By such methods, he set the casterlies at odds with one another and convinced them that the rock was haunted by some fell creature that would never let them live in peace. Other tellers prefer other versions of the tale. In one, Lan uses the cleft to fill the rock with mice, rats, and other vermin, thereby driving out the Casterlys.
0: In another version, he impregnates various Casterly women without their knowledge. So this is a good example of what we were saying before is how they smooth over something that's that's rape pregnancy (laughs) without their knowledge i mean that's just like that's a really a lot of words to say (laughs) it is expressed literally without their knowledge like they wake up they don't have there's no sign of it they don't feel like something happened in the night they're like gee that was a very vivid dream no they don't remember it at all they just become pregnant of course that's what the story says which that's pretty hard to believe (laughs) you know but uh, so this is a good example of the story smoothing over something that's a straightforward crime, <laughs> you know, a crime against humanity, clear ethical negative. But they just like, yeah, it just happened. Like, it's just a story, you know? So <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that you would want to express. But just in general, Lan isn't, uh, he's not heroic, right? He, it's different the way he's expressed. He's, he doesn't do things for other people like Garth. He doesn't make the reach bloom, which is obvious benefit to millions of people. This guy's just took over the building and. Now rules it, you know, (laughs) right? It's not, there isn't a whole lot of, look how great he is. Look how they talk about how smart he is, but there isn't really an attempt to make him seem like a good person or a great warrior or any of these things. He's just in charge. (laughs) Nina says one aspect that I appreciate about land. The clever is how Yandel introduces the more fantastical explanations while also noting the more likely practical explanation. That Len was a household retainer who married into the Casterlies and passed on the name. It's another way to show how these stories grew in the telling. And as time passes, the growing, well, things get, there's a lot of growing after time passes. She says that what starts as a pretty ordinary female line transfer of power evolves into an elaborate story of sneaking through the tunnels, tricking the Casterlies into betraying each other, using elaborate means to drive them out of the rock. Yeah, like you just said uh, a minute ago, Sean. Or we were, we were talking about the question from, who was that, from uh, Julie about the continuation of the Stark name and about matrilineal marriages. This sounds like just a tale that could have just been a matrilineal marriage. Yeah, there was no son, there was no son of Lan, or no son of the Casterlys, and Lan married a daughter.
3: And this time they didn't to keep the Casterly name. Yeah. The inverse of what we were talking about, really.
0: Yeah, so they just, this is thousands of years ago, so the rules were a little different back then, or Lan decided... rename them Lannisters because he could. He was powerful and hey, this is my castle. It's not like you guys have been here for thousands of years. It wasn't established like it is
1: now. Yeah, that's kind of neat. I wonder if at the time he was known as Land the Frustrating. (laughs) 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 But eventually they wanted to make him seem more positive and so landed clever. And I I do kind of appreciate having heroes that aren't through violence, you know what I mean? Now, maybe it was still through coercion or, you know, immoral action. But I, I like a clever yeah. more than a barbaric. Just
0: warrior stories all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. it's also variety. Yeah. It would be kind of boring if it was just... Then he killed the king and took over. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we saw that one before. It's good to have the variety. I totally agree with you there. Nina also says, it's again underlining how these fantastical tales can have real world origins. That doesn't mean the fantastical couldn't have happened because this is a fantasy setting where magic is real and active. but. It does imply that the legends start from somewhere. They could be fantastical, they could be mundane, they could be a little of both. There are three tales of Land's origin. Like a lot of characters, he's claimed by Garth's line either through Rowan Goldtree or Floris the Fox. Westerners instead say he conned an inheritance from Garth's line. So instead of him being a blood descendant, he ripped off Garth. <laughs> so we're using his cleverness. So that's the two disputed versions, the two two versions of the first king, whether he is Garth or whether Garth came after him or what have you. And some would say he's an Andal long before the Andals came over, which isn't like the night thing of anachronism because there's nothing. There's, no, there's not necessarily a reason to believe that Andals didn't exist yet. They just hadn't migrated over. Now, quite possibly the Andals did not exist at this point. But if they did, somehow a, an adventure or two coming across and finding their way into Westeros is very much feasible, I would think. I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be possible, unless the Andals didn't exist. But the precursor culture to the Andals may have. Someone with blonde hair and green eyes, right? It's not so strange. <laughs> Some people think maybe he came even farther from the West, like all the way from E.T., where they had the the different gemstone emperors, and that would explain Known why for this, their
3: blonde hair.
0: Yeah, the blonde hair. That would explain why these, this bloodline is... These genes are so persistent, because... It's obviously not realistic in the I was, real world. I was, I was
3: joking, but the green eyes, the relevant part.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, the blonde like, hair. He, so... he is
3: not known for blonde yeah. hair, to be clear. <laughs> just was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, of course.
0: That joke went right over my not yeah. blonde hair. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, you're a real blonde.
0: But yeah, he is supposedly had green eyes, golden hair, lived to be 312 years old, 100 daughters and sons each. Garth Greenhand, where there's just so many descendants, you can't keep track of them all. And there's also just no way you would ever think that the Lannisters are extinct. It's kind of gotten to that point where there's so many golden-haired, green-eyed folk around Lannisport and elsewhere that they do have these little mini distinctions, right? The micro-border of Lannisters of Casterly Rock versus Lannisters of Lannisport. These uh, divisions within the family, these hierarchies within the Lannister family. But it's kind of impossible to ever imagine that someone would be like, yep, I can take over because I wiped out all the Listers. It's like, really? All of them? (laughs) Holy crap, man. It's like a genocide. Let's talk a little more about this. Like, he's not... Like, you like the clever aspect, and I do too, but it's not common, is it? It's not... You see that occasionally, like, the occasional trickster god. With his supposed mother, Flores the Fox, huh? Yeah, mother. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good call. There's also our favorite, or one of our favorite ideas that came out during the time of when the Blood Moon show was in development, of course that got canceled. We really hoped that what's her name, the actress that was cast in the, yeah. who was that? I like that actress, but I, I know can't remember her name. Anyway, you can look. Naomi Watts. Yeah, yeah, Naomi Watts. Thank you. We were hoping she was a Lannister, and maybe she was Lan. We were hoping she would be Lan. like yeah, Lan's Oh, sister. that's a cool yeah. idea. As in the name Lannister is an is an amount is like a bastardization of the word Lan's sister. Yes. Lannister. Or, yeah, just generally Lannister, just,
3: yeah, the idea that, right? yeah, this woman is actually the origin origin of uh, House Lannister, yeah.
0: And given all this matrilineal marriage, legendary, it definitely fits with what we know, or what, it fits into the, what details we have. It works as a theory in that sense, so I, I think that's cool.
3: This connects to what you're about to say, actually. Okay. The person you're about to bring up is Loki, who, of course, is gender fluid. It's the idea of Loki is, Lan yeah. as a gender fluid uh, figure. <laughs> That's
0: a great point. Yeah, so in one tradition, Loki becomes female and then mates with a horse to give birth to Sleipnir, which is Odin's eight-legged horse. That's being a god for you. But yeah, let's talk about Loki briefly because Loki is seems like part of the inspiration for Lan, the trickster god stuff. Loki was bound to a rock for part of his life. So, casterly rock, there you go. Now, sometimes Loki is portrayed as having green eyes, but that's, or, and red hair, but those are just artistic impressions. None of the texts say that. There is a tradition that thinks he was blonde, though, because he's described as fair. And fair, a lot of times in the ancient world, fair means fair haired, but fair could just mean good looking. So don't take that to be too far. Now, look, he also has very scarred lips from stitching, and he's a fire god and he's a shapeshifter. Which brings us to our modern land, the clever figure Tyrion, who. Also has a scarred face, not lips, but a pretty huge scar. Also has similar hair. But, of course, Tyrion's hair is less like the other Lannisters than Loki's would might be. But, again, Loki doesn't necessarily have blonde hair or green eyes. The fire god, perhaps, is uh, there's a connection there because Tyrion is obsessed with fire. Now, he doesn't have to be Aerys's son for this to be true because he's obsessed with dragons anyway. Like Whether or not he, it's in his blood, it's part of his story, part of his personality. Also, there's a lot of expectation that Tyrion will... Sneak into Casterly Rock. It it happened on the show. He's the guy who cleaned the drains out. There's certainly a a theory that's been around since long before the show did its thing. So if he sneaks lions into Casterly Rock, it could be like an army. I mean, I doubt Tyrion's going to go in by himself and just start swinging his sword around. Be like, I'm here. I made it in. It's me. I can do this myself. So bringing in lion's men or something like that or just other dudes to help him. um, How does that ring for you,
1: Sean? It's certainly in the likelihood of how it'll go, not him doing it by himself. And it's like a clever person is more likely to get the help of others than just uh, charging with their battle axe, you know.
0: He's proven that he's clever and they want, yeah, they want to benefit from that cleverness in, in the future.
1: And uh, yeah,
0: and that is that is very true. Yeah, there's also Tyrion's promiscuity, which fits into some of this pretty well, uh, more with land than with Loki, I suppose. But still, that's uh, that works nicely. And then you wrote Land the Dwarf Theory. Yeah,
3: some people think just the fact that Land was able to slip into a cleft in a rock might Hmm. imply that, hey, maybe the original Lannister was a dwarf.
0: How about that? Yeah, that could make sense. Sure. I also just can't help thinking of Varys when I hear about little vermin being unleashed mice and rats. And, you know, because are they birds? Are they mice? Are they rats? Right? That's what he calls them. I mean, they're not literally any of those things. They're little children, but sneaking around and, Turning people against each other. I and mean, that's, that's Varus' modus operandi right there, right? Hiding in the tunnels, taking on multiple disguises. And Tyrion does that too, not as well as Varus, of course, but Tyrion is Hugo or the Hill. And these, you know, I'm forgetting some of his other nicknames, but you know, Yalo, Yalo, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
3: when Lan, if he brought vermin into Castle of the Rock, he was like Pied Piper of Hameland.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Hamelam. let's talk about the gray king who helped us kick off this episode now he's going to come back with some specifics let's start
1: wait is there any imagery out there of land the cover uh and butter buttered up for the (laughs) yeah
3: you know michael clarfeld had wanted to make that for his Westerlands map but the Westerlands map is still being created so not yet
1: he hasn't got the model yet to butter Just themselves up. Butter themselves up, yeah. Need
0: a need a good butter model. <laughs> got to get that down pat. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, this is really slipping away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the gray king. Oh wait.
3: Oh wait. Oh, another. No, I I did. I'll put it in the. I'll, I'll download and put an image. I did find that. I, I don't. When did Michael do this? Apparently, Michael does have art. The Heroes of Ice and Fire from 2016 that he did that shows land new... I'm just going to put it in the image. Uh but I don't anyways, remember this. I don't either at all.
1: Don't confuse this image with the Grey King. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Butter King. This is the Grey yeah, King. The Butter King. <laughs> the Grey King ruled the sea itself and took a mermaid to wife so his sons and daughters might live above the waters or beneath them as they choose. His hair and beard and eyes were as gray as winter sea, and from these he took his name. The crown he wore was made of driftwood, so all who knelt before him might know that his kinship came from the sea and the drowned god who dwells beneath it. The deeds attributed to the Grey King by the priests and singers of the Iron Island are many marvelous. It was the Grey King who brought fire to the earth by taunting the Storm King until he lashed down with a thunderbolt, setting a tree ablaze. The Grey King also taught men to weave nets and sail and Car the first longship from the hard pale wood of Yig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. The great King's greatest feat, however, was the slaying of Naga, largest of the sea dragons, a beast so colossal that she was said to feed on leviathons and giant krakens and drown whole islands in her wrath. The great King built a mighty long hull about her bones, using her ribs as beams and rafters. From here... He ruled the Iron Islands for a thousand years until his very skin had turned as gray as his hair and his beard. Only then did he cast aside his driftwood crown, walk into the sea, descending to the drowned god's watery halls to take his rightful place at his right hand. A thousand
0: and seven year reign. That's kind of odd that they added seven years on there, but...
1: (laughs) I wonder when that seven was added,
0: by the way, could that be... Incredic? It could be part mm-hmm. of that. You know, maybe that was a, a, a relic of their attempt to make him an aspect of the Stranger. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's entirely possible. I like that idea. He had a mermaid wife, which the drowned god apparently also did such a thing. And this is... When we get to I. you're going to want to make, consider the similarity there of a, a being from the sea. Garth showed humankind the secrets of basic survival. So this is where he has a lot in common with Garth. Fire, fishing, and sailing are all attributed to the Grey King. Promethean. With fire, it's literally Promethean. (laughs) With fishing and sailing, it's it's similar, you know, because Prometheus stole fire to give to the gods, which, I mean, from the gods to give to humans, which enabled humans to make grand progress. Now, in the Ig example, the demon tree, the pale wood of Ig, a demon tree fed on human flesh. That's super interesting to me because it really sounds like a werewood that people give blood sacrifice to when fed on human flesh, right? That sounds very clear. Hard, Mm -hmm. pale wood. So, That sounds like rejecting the old gods in the early days. That's what that sentence says to me. It's like, this is a figure who did not fall into this new order, maybe established after the pact where the first men started growing closer to the worship of the old gods, outright embracing it. This character not only rejected it, but he built a ship, which is also a rejection of sort of first men understanding, or at least a change from their attitudes and behaviors going to sea. By the way, that's very much a Norse reference as well, because the world tree in Norse myth is Yggdrasil, and it starts with that Y G G, and then goes into Yggdrasil, or however you say it. It's a really hard <laughs> word to say, but it, George just was like, "Yeah, we'll just go with Ig, Igon, <laughs> Egg." Yeah, <laughs> it's just like Egg. The trees are the equivalent of for uh, the idols of the chil- of the children of the forest of the old gods worship, but the Drown priests don't even have that. There's nothing, you know, you can say Naga's bones are idols of a sort, but that's not the kind of thing you carry around with you. It's not, it's only that one set of them. There aren't like other versions of Naga's bones elsewhere, like, whereas werewoods are all over the place. It's a much different attitude, right? It's not just uh, like, th- he's by far the most warlike of these major figures. The others are all like, and he has this too. Great King has this too, very prominent. The fire fishing and sailing stuff is, is speaks to that directly. These early figures are like, how do we survive in this world? In the North, Brandon, the builder built edifices that lasted forever. And then very importantly, he he made Winterfell, which is where you have the hot springs, which are life-giving. Um, it'd be really hard to live without those in, in the depth of winter. And similar to Garth Greenhan establishing agriculture. And when we get to Duran, we'll have some examples there too, but all these different versions of how this person, this ruling figure, made life possible for his followers. Not so much with land, though. Again, that's something else that land sticks out. Land was kind of just out for himself. There aren't stories about how well he ruled. It's just how many children he had and all his all that stuff. But these differences, to me, are. Really interesting. What do you think, Sean? What's uh, where are your where's your head at right now? Where are you at with where we're yeah, at?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's interesting the parallels that he has to the different ones like the long age and this advice for survival, if you will, but also the differences. And I I think about this constantly that the idea when you look back at different history, mythology, religion, there's a lot of these very common threads. But then there's also these distinctions, and to me, that's the difference, that's like the common threads or like the commonality among humanity, like around the world, different cultures, time periods, whatever, people are trying to stay warm, find food, they fall in love, you know, you have these different things. But then there's differences depending on maybe how advanced your society is or what kind of climate you live in, and at least these differences in cultures, religions, and so on, in addition to how they like maybe affect and absorb each other, but you have some that are like in very different geographical locations, that are unlikely to have been exposed in Azor, but still have these parallels to each other. This is also specifically making me think about another thing that might have happened. There was a, a study a guy did a while ago. He was intrigued by this idea that some people are like adventurous, adrenaline seeking. They like mm. jump out of planes. In, in old times, maybe they would have ventured out across the ocean. Nowadays, they go to the moon or whatever. But whereas other people like they wanna stay at home, they wash their hands, put your helmet on, like everything is careful and safe and, and stable. And other people were like crazy wild and adventurous. He's like, how can there be such disparate personality types among humans? And he sort of concluded that it was maybe necessary for evolution, uh, that you need to have people mm. who are willing to go adventure. So when a drought comes or the herd moves, like you have to have people who are willing to go find new water sources, who are willing to take chances. Mm so that we can find new resources and and migrate under duress and stuff. But you can't have everyone doing that because we'll end up dying (laughs) because you're taking too many chances. You have to have some people who want to be careful and stable. You need both these types. So I imagine among the first men, the more adventurous come over to this new land, they blaze a trail for other people who want to be more stable and settled. But over generations, you keep having more of both these types. So some of them get on ships and go out to the Iron Islands. So they're going to bring with them maybe some elements or stories of the children of the forest, but maybe these more adventurous people are more likely to like want to distinguish themselves from that. Like We're doing it our way. We have this more adventurous personality. Yeah. We're not gonna worship trees that <laughs> sit still all the time, right? We're gonna worship this underwater god that brings the storms. So. Constantly
0: moving the waves and yeah, that's, that's a yeah. very different kind of attitude. Yeah, huh, yeah, that's interesting.
1: And it parallels their more destructive lifestyles rather than a more stable lifestyle. Right on. Yeah,
0: that's true. Yeah, because they yeah, I mean, adventure, that's what they're, it's like this culture, this is like the cultural version of that. Ironborn very much revere explorers. And it's almost partly reflective of what you're saying, too. The ironborn don't have great natural resources and fertile fields and all that. But they also don't have the attitude to spread out. They recognize their home as holy and it kind of has maintained that way. They've never tried to, well, I won't say never, until the time of House Horror, they didn't really try to move to, like move their capital or change the center of their culture. But it did happen, and that's something we'll get to eventually. So we'll have to come back to this notation. We'll remember to connect these dots when we get to House Horror. That's, of course, pretty close to the time of the conquest. So we've got a while before we get there, but it will be fun when we do. A couple other random figures from the Age of Heroes. The Ironborn have a lot of Age of Heroes. A lot of them are just... Guys with cool names that were famous raiders. And that's really uh, all there is to it. But a few of them have fun details that either remind us of things happening now in the story or are just cool in general. Balin Blackskin is a legendary ironborn raider who supposedly lived during the Age of Heroes. He fought with an axe in his left hand and a hammer in his right, and he was impervious to injuries from any man-made weapon. Swords glanced off him, leaving no mark, while axes shattered against his skin. Euron, who has his Valyrian steel armor uh, that's black. Then we have Dagon Drum, who was known as Dagon Drum the Necromancer, which is like, what? A necromancer bringing people back from the dead. And we have an evil. He was also
1: known as the Handsome. uh, The Necromancer kind of took over in history, but.
0: (laughs) So here we see Sean Pink himself in his bearded glory as Dagon Drum the Necromancer. What's your favorite thing to necromance, Sean? Do you, like, uh, do you like, as an ironborn, do you like undead whales
1: or seals? Trojan, or- Jojen. <laughs> <laughs> You're consistent. Keep repasting him. <laughs> repasting, <laughs> cut and paste.
3: <laughs> cut and paste, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Krothgar of Pike is another Ironborn legend who supposedly possessed a horn capable of summoning krakens, which that's not the first time we've heard of a horn capable of summoning krakens. And of course, in Euron's case, he's got a horn capable of summoning dragons. Of course, Victorian actually has it now. But with necromancy, horns that summon giant animals and imperviousness to weapons, we've got like a bunch of guys that Euron is emulating all at once. Be aware of these cool parallels, keep in mind when you're reading in the future what they may mean. And your experience will be all the greater for it. That's right. That's right. Let's move on. Our last major figure today, Duran, God's Grief.
3: The legends surrounding the founder of House Durandin, Duran, God's Grief, all come to us through the Singers. The songs tell us that Durin won the heart of Elenae, daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. By yielding to a mortal's love, Elenae doomed herself to a mortal's death. And for this, the gods who had given her birth hated the man she had taken for her lord husband. All parents do. In their (laughs) wrath, they sent howling winds and lashing rains to knock down every castle Durin dared to build until a young boy helped him erect one so strong and cunningly made that it could defy their gales. The boy grew to be Brandon the Builder. Durin became the first Storm King. With Elena at his side, he lived and reigned at Storm's End for a thousand years, or so the stories claim.
0: So this thousand-year claim is a little interesting, too. I mean, it's similar to the other thousand-year claims. Elenide being a daughter of a sea god and wind goddess is the, probably the fanciest bloodline of all of these. Nina says it's a, it's not quite, it's more fancy than marrying a mermaid, but it does have similarities. She says it's sort of a prefigurement of Argella Durandan as Duran was not a god or a demigod, but incorporated a divine bloodline into his family thanks to his marriage to Eleni. So Aureus Baratheon was not a lord, but incorporated the royal Durandan bloodline into his family thanks to his marriage to Argella Durandan. It's kind of like history repeating itself with Oris bringing the Targaryen bloodline into the existing Durandan bloodline and sort of taking all that on for himself and his descendants. Yeah,
3: it's funny because Aureus is more of the... Uh demigod-like figure there.
0: Yeah, he's like maybe (laughs) related to the Targaryens. Yeah, exactly,
3: with the Targaryen heritage.
0: uh, Yeah, which is more explicitly magical in its current time frame because obviously if there's any magic left in the Storm King bloodline, it's probably pretty minor. Uh, Maybe it's just the appearance. Like you still have people that come out looking like Robert. (laughs) 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 Six foot six with big big eyes and huge strength. And Renly looked like that too. Well, I guess,
3: I mean, part of the question is also what Oris looked like.
0: Yeah, um, apparently Aureus' was black hair was would have had this look, but okay. part of it, some of it anyway.
3: But yeah, in terms of it being the Durrandon look as well. Yeah.
0: yeah, there's no it's no surprise that they're good looking folk. <laughs> you got that Targaryen and wind and sea god bloodline <laughs> going. <laughs> it's also the most like perhaps the most familiar to the Greek myths that we've been relating a lot of these to, given marrying sea god, wind goddess. That's similar to. Uh, a lot of the immortal relationships with humans that happens in uh, Greek myth, specifically the stuff that leads up to the Trojan War, like the marriage of Thetis to uh, Achilles' dad, um, Peleus. It's also kind of like Arwen from Lord of the Rings who surrendered her immortality to Mary Immortal. And there's a little bit of similarity elsewhere in this comparison, which is that Aragorn, to be worthy of Arwen before Elrond would allow the marriage... Oh, I can't remember her mother's name. Starts with the Sea. Aragorn had to reclaim two thrones in order to be worthy, so to speak, and Durin had to rebuild his castle over and over until the seventh castle became Storm's End. So there's a little bit of you know having to earn it from the parents, you know, <laughs> that kept set him on this task over and over, and that's uh, very familiar. in that like when I remember reading this myth for the first time and feeling like I was reading Greek myth. Partly that's just my familiarity with Greek myth. I'm sure there's some other myth cycles out there that also have some similarities here, but I'm speaking to what I know. If you all know something else, please share it. Even if it's a fantasy reference like Lord of the Rings, but uh, the myth ones are cool too.
1: Superman had to give up his powers to marry Lois Lane. It was part of a lot of Superman too. Good point. Yeah, I think giving up, surrendering
0: immortality is maybe almost a trope. Um, it's It's happened enough times throughout stories of many types didn't what's her name surrender There's a lot of mermaid like giving up their mermaid nishness to become a human like um yeah, splash didn't that't did Daryl Hannah give that up? No, no, it went the other way around and splash he ended up going to the mermaid world with her at the end, didn't she didn't he? Yeah, that's right. She lived with them, but at the end they go. they go swim off into the sea to become deep ones <laughs> at the end, but um. Also in the the Witcher short story, uh, A Little Sacrifice, there's a relationship between a, a mermaid and a, a lord, and they, are, they bicker and argue over who's going to go live and the others. <laughs> I literally can't breathe water. She's like, oh, excuses, excuses. <laughs> Besides perhaps Brandon, Duran is perhaps the best example of names just confusing us because it's like all of them were named Duran. It's not like there was... It's not like even Garth, where there was Garth and then a bunch of other names, but lots of Garths. This is just the Storm Kings were like, no, everyone's named Durin. I mean, there were a few exceptions, but it's, <laughs> they were really hardcore. You know what?
3: They were in Durin.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Good one. <laughs> I approve that pun. Yes, yeah, so that's really neat. They add to the historical confusion of the notion that there was a thousand years of Durin, when it might have just been a thousand years of guys named Durin. <laughs> that sounds more believable, but, you know, we do have the possibility of of a little of both or a couple other houses in the Stormlands that are worth mentioning and a different style of founding that I want to close us out with today. Consider that house Dondarian and their purple lightning. Dondarrion, Durand, and yeah, it kind of sounds similar. Hmm. But the founding story of House Dondarrion, as told to us in The Hedge Knight, is that the scout was trying to carry an important message to the Storm King, and a pair of Dornish scouts found him and were going to kill him, but purple lightning struck them down. The scout carried his message to the Storm King in receiving that message, changed his battle plans, and won. I probably would have lost if he hadn't, so this was huge. And the scout was rewarded with lands and a keep that became Blackhaven and now we have House Dondarrion. So that's their founding story. There's not we don't even get the name of that scout. We know his name became Don Darian. Maybe that was his first name, but it's interesting how that doesn't seem well, to be obviously
3: important. Obviously his first name was Don, it was Don, Don Darien.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so right isn't that's a different style of origin story, right? Instead of a some famous person that they all descend from, you sort of have the same famous person, but it's this deed, this famous, like, miraculous event that instead inspires this house rather than a a person, right? So that's kind of neat, and that's a springboard for us to bring up a few similar examples. Or similar style categorization, such as houses that have a reputation, like the sinister repute of House upcliff. Now, it's House upcliff of Witch Isle. They're kind of fighting an uphill battle when you live on which isle, to not sound sinister. But there's also some examples that aren't. What's up, Cliff? What up, Cliff?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's up with you?
0: <laughs> in the Riverlands, the Vale, Dorne, and, and other sub-regions of the major regions, in other words, places where it was not all the rage of heroes, so you have places that have, don't have a central founding figure, from the First Men, but instead have something like that, a sinister repute or an origin story like the Dundarians, or just something else entirely. As I said before, the Vale—the veil, Vale's founding figure is Artis Aaron, but he's an and-all. He's not around yet. So mm, prior to him, like I said, there was the Griffin King, but we don't know much about him. The winged knight is often confused with Artis Aaron, especially the knight part. He's kind of a bridge figure from Artis Aaron to the First Men kings of, of prior... But that's really its own subject, and there's um, not a lot of supernatural elements to that either. In the Riverlands, we have characters like Artos the Strong, Florian the Fool, Nine Finger Jack, Shara the Witch Queen, and the Green King of the God's Eye. None of the Riverlands houses care about descent from these figures that we know of. I haven't heard a single one of these figures mentioned in the lineage of any of the Riverlands houses. I suspect Artos the Strong is the founder or early. Progenitor early figure from House Strong. But even that's just a guess, like an educated guess. Florian the Fool is a famous figure, but people don't talk about descent from him. They just talk about his story. It's an interesting story of Maidenpool and Florian and John Keel and all that. But blood connections doesn't really seem to be important, doesn't seem to be a part of it. So that's kind of interesting as well. And maybe that's part of the reason the Riverlands is the way it is. There isn't one grand unifying figure, there isn't uh, one bloodline that can kind of trump all the others. Storm's kind of similar. Lots of old, really old houses, not much in the way of founding figures, legendary or otherwise. We don't need to really repeat that, but I wanted to bring them up here to put them in this category like that.
1: It kind of makes sense to me. I was going to say these, these lands maybe don't care about it for one reason or another, but you can see other people who might not care about it, like Olena, mm-hmm. Like if you have something else to care about, something else worth caring about, like if you've mm. actually accomplished something, you don't need to call back to some ancient history, like what have I done? Or what has my family done recently? And also someone like Kulena, who maybe is a little bit more practically minded. She doesn't care that your great grandfather or great grandfather was some warrior, like what have you done for me lately, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's the swords of now. The stories help, but they can't lead, right? They can bolster, but it it needs to be the swords and will powers of today and coins of today that drive it all.
1: There was this moment when uh, Lena was, Sizing up Sansa when she was the prospect of Joffrey marrying Marjorie and uh, their conversation. And uh, they're going back and forth and Elena's putting her on the spot. Sansa's trying to think of how to respond. She's Sansa's mouth open and closed. The Tyrells can trace their descent back to Garth Greenhand. <laughs> was the best she could manage at short notice. And the Queen of Thorns snorted.
3: So can the Florence, the Rowans, the Oakarts, and half the other noble houses of the South. Garth like to plant his seed in fertile ground, they say. I shouldn't wonder that more than his hands were green.
0: <laughs> I love <So>. that, yeah. <laughs> she's throwing shade at the old legend. She's like, yeah, we talk about it. But it's just like how she jokes and, and looks down on the constant trumping of sigils. And like, yeah, yeah, like roses and stags. And like, yeah, sure, that's really, yeah, it's real fancy, really. Yeah, it makes us great, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, she just she thinks it's all pretty silly. And this is... Yeah, it makes saying?
1: her stand out as a character that she's not as concerned with all the pomp and circumstance. She like, sees through it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's still she's- whatever your sigil is, whatever your, <laughs> your related Gars Grehan, whatever. Uh, we need money for food. You need boats in the Navy. You know, like where who's getting married? We need to figure out these decisions right now. And I don't care about some past connection to some famous person or whatever your house words are. Like, what's the reality of what we need right now? She's much more practically minded. And she's in a position where she gets to be, even she if some underling, if some random guard in her house spoke poorly of the roses, she probably couldn't let that go. You know yeah. what I mean? But she's in a position of power where who's going to challenge her when she makes these observations. So yeah. she, I mean, she's in a position where she gets to be more dismissive of this type of stuff. But I appreciate her take. You know? Yeah,
0: me too. It's like the, it's almost like, literally speaking, she's sort of playing the role of, she's the wise matron, but she's also the playing the role of the fool by saying things that no one else is allowed to say, partly because of who she is. She's the old, being an older woman that gives you like license to say things in a lot of societies that almost anyone else can't say. And she has life experience, huge amounts of that. And she understands the way these stories work. She's what she's expressing here is some of these stories are exaggerated, but they, she also understands that they do have power. For example, she's the one who lied about her own marriage (laughs) to her own marriage history. It's like, oh, yeah, I put a stop to that Targaryen marriage. Wait, wasn't he gay? Isn't that really what the big problem
1: was? (laughs) You put a stop to that? Yeah, it seems like the way he was
0: born put a stop to that.
1: (laughs) It's also clever for her, and I think clever for Martin to write all this, too, because her being more dispensive dismissive of this sort of lore and pomp and everything lowers Sansa's guard. Sansa's yes, a little more okay, true. telling the truth when she sees that that's what Olenna really wants. You know, she's <laughs> yeah, you has to play the game right yeah, now. Yeah, it's very
3: calculated. Yeah, she's she wants, not just oh, yeah. she's not just being yeah. frank. She wouldn't just
1: be that frank always.
0: She's leveling. Yeah. yeah, she's trying to get Sansa to open up. You're totally right. There's that's power in these stories, but true.
1: there's also power in frankness.
0: Yeah, um, and, that, and that's what we're seeing here. And she's being frank about the stories in order to gain that leverage over Sansa to say, "Hey, yeah. stop just quoting, stop quoting stuff." You would just say, "You know, she's." being a courtly songbird. Like Sandor would say, you're just being a little bird right now. That's what this is. Yeah. Whereas Sandor would just say that bluntly to her face. Olen is like, that's what she's doing. Here's how I can get her to shift gears and speak on a different yeah. level and open up to me. And, and it's a confidence game. Yeah, you're, y'all are totally right to bring that up because that's that's part of what these stories are used for in the first place. These stories are mm. used to gain or remove confidence, to inspire, to inflame Etc. So, yeah, that's this. I didn't realize how well this quote would work out here at the end, but it's for sure doing. Good job. Sean pulled that quote. Well mm-hmm. played. Adding on to the concept of founding legends that don't refer to specific people, we have things like House Royce and House Dane that have artifacts as they're linked to the ancient past, which somewhat reminds us of the Grey King and Naga's bones as a physical reminder of that. And these artifacts and the stories about them drive their behavior. House Royce still wears this silly bronze armor, which is cool to have and to talk about and analyze, but to actually wear it in battle is like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> it's like it's bronze. That's
1: that's inspiring confidence. Yeah, inspiring confidence yeah. <laughs> or or being
0: silly. One or the other. I mean, yeah, that's it works. In it probably does work. You know, you're probably right, Sean. Like I'm I'm being I'm downplaying it, but they the men in, uh, who were following uh, Bronze Royce into battle probably are inspired by it, even though it's maybe not the best idea. Like,
1: even if he's half as effective as a warrior, if he gets 20 other warriors, to be 10% more effective. Hey, that was worth it. There you go.
0: That's right. You gotta spend money to make money. You gotta spend bronze to make steel. (laughs) (laughs) And with House Dane, it's even more specific, uh, more organized, right? Only certain people are worthy of this sword. It's not just the firstborn son that inherits the runic bronze armor and that makes them stand out as the inheritor of this important artifact, you got to do the right deeds. You got to be worthy of it. You have to show evidence that you're worthy of this. So different versions of a similar thing, but they both refer to the founding stories of the house, the identity of that house in a way that is not a person. Like, we don't know the name of the guy who led the Danes to follow that, to follow the falling star that they found the meteor from. That guy's name isn't remembered. Got artwork of him from Michael. (laughs) You know, Michael, people have tried to give us imagery of it, but the legend is it focuses on the sword and where and its origin and how that framed the identity of this house, not the person, not the people around that story. So six of one, half a dozen of the other, lots of different versions of this. George clearly has borrowed from a lot of different traditions, whether they're real world, or whether there are other fantasy stories or other fiction stories. And a lot of it's just his own imagination, of course. And the way he merges it all together is very unique and and just permanently George. Once George takes over a historical figure, it's permanently his. (laughs) And we've got a few questions to finish off with today. Actually, more than a few. So let's get to them. Guilty Undertaker says Land the Clever also parallels what the Lannisters do to the throne of all of Westeros. Oh!
3: Think about uh, the children that didn't know that they you know they were pregnant, yeah.
0: True, true, true. Well said. Good Very, catch, Guilty.
1: Un-
3: yeah, I winkled Guilty the, the throne <laughs> away. Yeah.
1: Yeah, hmm, I like that. Yeah, I'm just thinking pondering that, realizing how g- good that thought is. Yeah, <laughs> well played. Like I'm surprised I never noticed that. That's a really good one. <laughs> Remember, I said it was uh, maybe at the time it was Land the Frustrating, Joffrey the Frustrating.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Hari Krishnan says if you combine all the current Lannister narratives
0: into an archetype, Land would be a dwarf woman who is in love with her sibling. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Bryson Shung says, in terms of the riverlands, I'd say it's because the houses with the most ancient and noble roots in there are gone, like house mud. The ancient bloodlines aren't as celebrated there. Yeah, absolutely. And when we get to the riverlands, that's going to be a, a topic, certainly. House Mud has been extinct for a while. And we even mentioned that last time as one of the, like a tiny subtle detail to show that the Age of Heroes is back or has reemerged is things like there's a guy in the Golden Company calling himself Mud. 99.999999% sure that guy has nothing to do with House Mud, but just the fact that the name is coming back is emblematic of this era. You know, ancient claims and ancient titles coming back, old kingdoms and uh, all these great memories. I like that. Yeah, that's very true. And it, with the with Garth Greenhand, it's more recent. The Mud Line went out thousands of years ago, whereas Garth Greenhand was his line ended on the Field of Fire. That's only three hundred years ago. So there, yeah, there, there's the squabbling and they're still resentful over Aegon putting the Tyrells above everyone else, which is part of why the Reach has been not very prominent in a lot of the civil wars because the Tyrells have never at any point had a great hold over their vassals. And this is part of why Garth Greenhand, this bloodline stuff, is at the center of it all. And here's a couple of these. We've got people who responded to our question from last week about how characters would be remembered. Current A Song of Ice and Fire characters, Sir Austin Flower says, a little about John in Maester Eamon's eulogy aboard the Cinnamon Wind. Sam says that, quote, a dozen lords commander came and went during his years of service. This is significant because should anything happen to the library at Castle Black, Sam, having a healthy respect for Aemon and not having obsessed over the previous two counts, as we all have, will attest that John is the 13th Lord Commander in recent living history, unlucky 13, and perhaps a candidate for the second Age of Heroes' Knight's King, who was also the original 13th Lord Commander. So, well said, good said, Austin Flowers. There's a lot of little details about John and Aemon that align pretty well with our current topics. Yeah, Amen how Amen will be remembered. That's a good one. Hmm. A lot of people focused on John and other major characters, but yeah. Like how will they remember him at the Citadel? For example, Marwyn the Mage talks about how they denigrate him because of his bloodline and his interest in supernatural stuff. Maybe Amen won't be remembered fondly at the Citadel, but Sam will remember him fondly and if John's around, he will too and hopefully some other people.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the Citadel perspective, but I think which might also be not as positive as it should be, but the people in general probably barely will remember him at all. He didn't like conquering any lands. He didn't kill him with a sword. He's way out the way the heck up there on the wall. I mean, yeah. yeah. Probably a very noble, intelligent person who maybe saved the realm from a lot of heartache and just won't be remembered for any of it.
0: Yeah, basically the history will cut off the point where he takes goes to the wall. Because certainly when he was... History will remember him around the time of the Great Council that they tried to offer him the crown on the sly. That, Because he's a Targaryen. <laughs> that was the son of Mekar and all that. that. That part will be remembered. But yeah, his time as a maester and all the stuff where he may have helped save the world. <laughs> it's way more important, but not as likely to be remembered by a mile. Michael H. says, similar to Brienne the Beauty, I think Sam will be unironically remembered as the Slayer for killing the first other and establishing the differences between white and other vulnerabilities. Most importantly will be him writing these things down on some book in the Citadel, giving him a place in recorded history, perhaps giving him the opportunity to not have the record be written by someone else about him, in which case maybe Sam the Slayer will be a little less literal. But he really did do that. I mean... Uh He did slay. I'm, I'm surprised we didn't think of that. Slay, I'm su- kind of surprised Michael's the first slay. one to mention that, or at least the first one that I've seen. What's that?
3: I just said slay
2: Sam.
0: Slay Slay, yeah, slay Sam. So yeah, me yeah, does Sam. have that name, and he really did it. And that's a good conversation that happens between him and Gren when he's like, they call me the slayer as a mock. He's like, yeah, but you really did kill that other. <laughs> and you you know, when when some of them are mocking you with it, but when I say it, I'm remembering that you slayed that other. I was there. When when Sir Alistair calls me Orox, he's mocking me for being slow and and dim-witted or whatever. But an aurochs is big and strong and prote- can protect its its herd. And that's the way he likes to think about it. So yeah, it's really just a, in the eye of the beholder. And when you're reading history, I, something that looks good to you
1: might look bad to the person writing it and vice versa. And I hadn't considered it either, but Sam may really be set up to be a unique historical character. You know, if you... He could hit on several different bases. So yeah, he's sense, done so many different things and, and, and unique you know. things and memorable things. Like, even if he didn't do anything else, he might not have done enough to quite get remembered. Especially depending on how the stories are told or if they're remembered. Or, but, but it still is unique. There is a history to the Tarlers, Tarlies. Like he's got some sort of like yes. line of prestige he's there. He's a southerner, and, then, and he
3: swore up in the north, right?
1: And then to go to the north and then to go to the citadel and to have killed another, like he he's just sort of he's traveling. You know, and it, I mean, there's it, a lot of potential for him to have a very storied legend. yeah, but, if
3: more things come out, I mean about like the baby, for example, like yeah. there's some there's some oh, drama yeah. involved there as well.
1: Yeah,
0: he <laughs> might he might have something to do with helping the realm fight grayscale, right Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of that mm-hmm. in the show. it's It should be something different in the books, but there's definitely more opportunities for him to do amazing things. Also, I don't know how the people at the Citadel really look at this, and I don't know if we get something where he has a falling out with people at the Citadel. That's possible. But if I'm a maester, and there's a one of my maesterly compadres is doing all these things that you just described, Sean, that's a heroic maester. I would be like, yeah, he's you
1: our... You want to prop him
0: up? Yeah, I mean, unless they just yeah. don't like him, which is possible. They might think of him too much as too much of a rebel, in which case the maesters of 100 years from now might be the ones that like him and the ones who exist in the same era as him may have stuck in their craw how different he is or how he broke conventions or Yeah, I, mean, I feel happened. like
3: he would be like things out of like a scholar warrior you know Yeah, right hundred yeah. You know, yeah, in the future yeah. it would be like some maesters would look up to him and want to do the things they're writing about and
0: killed yeah. an other and then wrote it, wrote about it like
1: that is oh. badass yeah. <laughs> Consider to, like how he might parallel to Rhaegar right? Like, sure, you know, yeah, the especially are, if he keeps going on to do more and more, if he lives longer and does more stuff and, and continues his travels and, and it may be downplayed. Like if, like you said, if the, the senior Citadel members are like upset at this upstart to feel like he's like tainting the reputation or stealing their thunder or whatever it is. But like you said, a hundred years from now, he might be, he was ahead of his time. That might be how he was looked at. A
3: funny comparison for um, Sam would be Daeron Targaryen, the young dragon, and just someone who wrote his own history
0: book. Yeah, he, he conquered yeah, yeah, yeah. Dorne and then wrote did about the, the Dornish. Hacks,
3: and then he wrote about it, yeah. which is what Sam would be doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, Sam is doesn't have high self-esteem, so he needs a little more. He needs a few more talks with Gren. Otherwise, he's going to just write himself out. He's going to just <laughs> yeah, downplay it. I think he
3: would just like not mention what he did. He'd be like, And then another died.
0: <laughs> like then, then the maesters who came after him were like he did not Sam the Slayer Maester Archmaester Sam the Slayer was uh, notoriously <laughs> humble about his deeds so here I am here to set the record straight yeah <laughs> that's really fun I like thinking about this this is cool And and one more from Thomas Smithson, who says that the jealous bastard of Winterfell who sat at the wall and let his brothers die one by one, then went across the wall and made a deal with a king beyond the wall to use his army to steal the birthright away from his sisters. Jon Snow, 500 years later, lol. <laughs> yep, yeah, I can see yeah. it. I can see it. And, and that's one thing that's great about these is it doesn't have to be one story. A variety of stories will be told by about Jon Snow 500 years from now. And some of them will be like this. Some of them will call him a hero. I don't know which of there'll be more of, but I'm pretty confident there will be a variety. And it just depends on like what region you're from, what values you uphold, and what version of the story you heard first when you were a child. Things like that. Kind of like how it is now. Like A lot of times the, we hear a story when we're a kid and that kind of frames how we think about it for a long time until maybe at some point when we're an adult, we might hear differently. We might relearn it, but we might not relearn it because we have we don't take a second look. So here's my way of saying it's important to take a second look sometimes things you learned mm-hmm. as a child or even as a younger adult it might be time to take a second look at some of those things so see them differently now
3: so should we start the episode over and take a second look
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> let's go let's go because everybody is definitely we're going to go compete against the super bowl yeah let's, let's do
1: that yeah <laughs> you Shay, you just want to take a second look at buttered up land the yeah. carpet,
3: huh? <laughs> closer look
1: buttered up
0: Lannisters and Marjorie and Tyrell Hmm. (laughs) 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 Oilena Oh nice All right. let's uh, let's See
1: it's a good thing we took a second look
0: Let's slide out of here (laughs) (laughs) Thank you everyone for coming I think Sean may go grab the cat and while he's doing that I will mention what episodes you all could check out next because we mentioned a lot of them Uh, If you're hearing this later, it may be time for you to check out Brandon the Builder. But uh, if you're watching the live stream, it's not out yet. Our episode on the Comet is pretty relevant for changing of the the ages and different interpretations. That whole concept. Our episode on the Night's King, as I said, has a lot to talk about. Night's King, Night's Queen, Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode is out there as well. We mentioned our episodes on House Blackwood and House Manderly. There's two of each of those. Those are historical episodes scripted. So basically, we touched on a lot of things today. We talked about Euron. We talked about a lot. So you can kind of pick an episode at random from our back catalog, and decent chance it's going to relate to some of this stuff. But that's kind of how it always works, isn't it? It all ties together. It's all connected. So once again, thank you all. I know a lot of you probably had Super Bowl parties to attend or what have you, so we appreciate any of y'all who still came. And if you're catching it later, we appreciate that too. You can join the discussion, as always, on Discord or Patreon or Facebook or by tweeting at us at Dancing Sean at Mirony's Not at History of Westeros. You can do that.
2: Oh,
3: we got a kitty. We got Jet today.
0: Jet the black kitty. Yes. Jet. We have black. a comment
3: from Lord Middlefinger who said Sam could be a septic bar.
0: Septic bar. Yeah. <laughs> That's, the part.
3: Yeah. that's good <laughs> uh, Oh, look at that jet yeah. she's yeah. looking so pretty <laughs> the cat the, the gender fluid her. cat
1: yeah, well, yeah Loki it could be a Loki cat she has her arm hanging out <laughs> there
0: she's
3: just so black
1: <laughs> mm. more black
0: blackest black
3: yeah what a good girl oh, I see her claws <laughs> I see her claws sticking out
0: <laughs> Yeah, sharp Our friends over at Here Be Dragons are doing The Legend of Vox Machina today. They are bravely going up against the Super Bowl, but hey, a lot of people don't care about the Super Bowl. Mm. And also thanks to Nina. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and uh, Kevin for the music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld. Big double, extra triple thanks to Michael today because we sure did use a lot of his images. If you're listening on the podcast version, you should go to one of our social media spots. To check out these links and check out these artwork if you haven't seen them already. Some of you have seen them already. They've been around for a few years. And of course, thanks to our Benjineer who informed me that he's very close on the uh, Tyrion 2 T-Wow chapter audio. We haven't talked about those in a while, but we still are trying to get them done. And there's various um, things holding them back, but
3: if you think work you have- hasn't stopped. It- if you think you have a good year on Greyjoy, submit. Otherwise, I don't even care about your submissions right now. I just need on. <laughs>
2: it's so hard to find a perfect
3: year Yeah,
0: on. I actually uh, was thinking about trying myself. I, I got three hours sleep on Saturday. My voice was particularly uh, like low.
2: Yeah.
3: And I was
0: messing with the script. So if, if I get if I have a light day of sleeping,
3: I'm try, try it. Yeah. I mean, we, we need someone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I always <laughs> imagine you're on with more of a Mickey Mouse voice. <laughs>
3: oh, <laughs> no, as no, he's doing so pretty a, so good. Shade of Mickey.
0: the evening. Oh, <laughs> I would love Arnold <laughs> <try to>. <laughs> Pip. Born again! A new (laughs) god will arise from the graves!
3: (laughs) Dragonbinder! We are! You're gonna scare the audience!
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what the kids do not need is to associate Disney with Euron. I mean, uh, Mickey Mouse. With yeah, I already think of whenever
3: I hear the Mickey Mouse voice and see Mickey, I just think of the South Park or whatever it was. Mickey. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think we
0: talk, I think we talked
3: about it on the podcast. Mafia too. boss. Mickey, yeah, I just yeah. think of that Mickey.
0: <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway, friends, fellow historians, and all you beautiful people out there. Wherever you're listening to us today, we appreciate it. We're all part of this great fandom together. Yeah. And we'll be back soon with another episode of Valar re